This week on For Crying Out Loud. And then when did that become, I got Spongebob money, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the world of basic cable, does that day ever come? Uh, You know. uh, Probably, yes. (laughs) (laughs) When you're Spongebob, it doesn't come that often. Yeah. But you you kind of got the lottery ticket, man, the winning ticket. Well, it's good to have something that's around for a little while. It gives you kind of a... A leg to are you, stand on. Are you part? Of, are you part of the creators? No, no. So I'm merely a session musician. I'm the then, bass player. But don't you think like the writers are? It's really the writing of the show that makes it. Are you trying to downgrade? Wow. No, it's, no, it's, no, 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 wow. no. But here's the I mean, thing: pretty much anybody could play. You asked me to be on your podcast, and now I feel like you brought me in and you're insulting me. That is no, pretty you know funny. No, the thing is, this is interview's that... over, Lynette. <laughs> bye bye. Check out an all-new episode of For Crying Out Loud this Friday or go to cryingoutloudshow.com only from Corolla Digital. This is Corolla Digital. Hello, my little waffle fries. It's me, Allison. Before the show officially starts, a few words believe we have an iTunes comment of the week. Allison wants your iTunes comments. Allison wants them. Yes, she does. Please leave her some iTunes comments and don't forget to click five stars. All right. Our iTunes comment of the week this week comes from Ducati Lou 81 and it is titled, I'm in my closet. Every time I'm listening to Allison's podcast and someone asks me what I'm listening to, I whisper, Allison. I admit, it's my guilty pleasure. I love the show and every single guest that's been on it, which is strange because I always judge. Yes, I'm a judger, so please don't judge me. Still, I will most likely deny all this when anybody asks me what my podcast, what's my podcast of choice. I'll work, I'll work the nerve up. I'll stop whispering Allison and eventually write reviews such as this one in broad daylight and not while hunched over in my tiny closet. Nobody can see me. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Check it out! Well, thank you, Lou. I appreciate that you're, you know, being public about it by leaving this comment, which, by the way, if you guys want your comment to be considered for iTunes Comment of the Week, leave a comment on iTunes and click five stars. But this whole thing has made me wonder, am I some kind of secret guilty pleasure, the kind of thing that people don't feel that they can proudly tell everyone about? And instead, they're just like, like, like some crappy pop song where you're like, oh, wow, here I am rocking out to Kelly Clarkson or Katy Perry. Those are a couple of my guilty pleasures. I want to be your Silver Sun pickups or some other thing that you feel good and even hipsterish about liking. Gary, what's going on? Am I lame? I don't think so. Thank you. I don't think it's a guilty pleasure. Do you proudly tell people you work on this show? Absolutely. Thank you. Have you gotten your Allison Rosen is your new best friend logo tattoo on your person yet? No, but I have a limited edition t-shirt that I wear from time to time. That's right. I enjoyed seeing you wear that very shirt when we had a go-to-meeting meeting, which takes me right into the fact that I want to tell you guys about one of my favorite sponsors, GoToMeeting uh, from Citrix with HD Faces. Let's say you need to meet with some coworkers. Let's say you don't want to haul your buns into the office, which, uh, if you're me, is pretty much all the time. You just meet with them with GoToMeeting. You can use your webcam. You can do this on your laptop, on your desktop, on your iPad. You can call in on your iPhone. Um, and then you can meet 
face-to-face. You can see each other with HD quality, and you can get all your work done without actually having to be in the same place, which is the way of the future, and it's super convenient, and you don't have to smell your coworkers. Recently, Gary was sick. Uh, He's better now, though, which I'm happy about. But while he was sick, we just go to meeting it up we met on go to meeting and then i didn't have to breathe in his phlegmy germs yeah absolutely i mean it, and it was you know go to meeting has the built-in screen sharing mm-hmm. and you can you can give control of your your screen over to somebody else so you know you can share your screen and then their mouse becomes your mouse so they can change stuff and uh, i was sick and i uh I did not want to give it to anybody, but we absolutely had to do some work on the show, and we uh, we jumped on GoToMeeting, and I actually hosted it from my iPad, which is a new feature. Um, it used to be you could only join meetings from your iPad, but I uh, I started it up from my iPad, and then I showed you uh, some pictures that we yeah, had, and we, we collaborated. It was great, and GoToMeeting is just awesome. I mean, it, it works. It is a solid product, and it, it's, it's a workhorse. Mm-hmm. It is powerfully simple. Uh, start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today with GoToMeeting. My listeners, that's you guys can try it free for 30 days. Don't wait for this special offer. Visit GoToMeeting.com. Click on the Try It Free button and use the promo code Allison. Be sure to use the promo code Allison. As I've said before, whenever I uh, leave a GoToMeeting and go back to just emailing my coworkers and friends, I feel kind of lonely. And then I think how empty my life has become. But thank God for this technology, which is making it more simple. Okay, also, I would like to tell you guys about scorebig.com. This is like Priceline for sporting event tickets, concert tickets, music tickets, any sort of thing where you want to buy tickets. You know that you you know how you have been in a situation where you're like, oh, I really want to go to that whatever, fill in the blank, game, let's say. Um, and then you find out it's sold out and you're thinking, but I just know there's some seats there and I just know I'm being lied to. I mean, you're not being lied to when they say sold out because on their end it is sold out, but there are tickets available that's why you need to go to scorebig.com because you can get those tickets and there's not going to be all sorts of crazy service charges tacked on. There's not going to be upselling. Uh, you set the price. You say, this is how much I want to pay. And then if they can do it, you will get the tickets for exactly how much you say. Yes, Gary. When was the last time you went to a, like a sold out thing at the bowl or a, in my case, a sporting event that is sold out and you know sold out, signs everywhere, and then you sit down and the four seats next to you sit empty the entire goddamn show it's or every, game. Everything. Every time. I was actually just at a sold out event last night. I was performing, and there was a like a whole row in the back. Right, it's ridiculous, and it's just these guys have figured out that although everyone says sold out, that's because you know some corporation bought season tickets or yeah. or whatever the case may be, and these seats, even though they may have been paid for or they may be you know quote unquote taken, are still available, and they work with various people and they do up to the up to the minute updates on their site, and when they find tickets, they'll put them up, and then they set a price that you know they they can do, and then people bid on them, so you can go and say, well, I want to. See the, I want to see the Lakers, and I want to sit on the floor level, but I can only pay $112 a seat. And you put that in, and if they can do it, they'll just charge your credit card right there. You get your tickets. It's $112 a seat, no fees. They deliver them to you and everything. It's really, really great, and they've figured out a way to take something that's extremely frustrating and turn yes. it into a, a bonus for the consumer. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend them. It's very, very simple to use. It's a great product. Mm-hmm. And you don't feel shaken down afterwards. Go to scorebig.com and enter the code FRIEND, friend like Allison Rosen, your new best friend, at checkout and get an extra $15 off scorebig.com's already low prices for your first order. 
Tickets on scorebig.com are always below box office price guaranteed. Don't forget to enter FRIEND at checkout and get an extra $15 off scorebig.com's already low prices for your first order. Um, as a reminder, these you know when there's a promo code, the company is looking to see how many people came to them via this show. So a lot of times people will, will ask how they can support the show, how they can help us out. Um, and bless you if you ask that or think that. Uh, and here's an easy way. And you get a great product. And But even if you don't think that or ask that, I still love you. Unconditionally. Unless you're an asshole. So it's almost. It's like almost totally unconditionally. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, we have an exciting episode for you. It is my friend, Rhett Reese. Uh, he wrote Zombieland and a bunch. And he developed the Joe Schmo Show, which is my favorite reality show ever. Uh, and working on a bunch of upcoming stuff, which you'll find out when you listen. Here comes the episode. Here it is right here. I love you. Bye. Allison Rosen. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison. Hey everyone, hi, hello, it's me, Allison Rosen, and welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. My guest today is producer and writer Rhett Reese. Hello. Hello. Rhett Reese of Zombieland and Joe Schmo Show and a lot of other things that we're going to get into and writer, producer. Did I leave anything out? Are you directing now? Uh, we're not directing yet, no. Okay. We would love to. Right. But not yet. The we being you and your writing partner, yes, Paul Wernick, Paul not Wernick. not the royal we. No, I, don't, I never use the royal we as, yeah. as a rule. Never ever? N- not really. Okay. Great. I could start tonight. We could. <laughs> we, yes, you. we could. That's just you, though. <laughs> yeah, all of us could. So um, let's see. What I feel like there's all sorts of new projects that you're working on that I read about, but I don't know. So fill me in on what you're doing currently. Well, uh, the latest thing we are currently working on is a rewrite on a script of ours uh, called Cowboy Ninja Viking. Oh, wow. uh, Which uh, we originally wrote for Disney and Universal ultimately bought from Disney. It's based on a graphic novel of the same name. Uh, It's about a superhero with multiple personality disorder and living within his crazy head. He has a cowboy, a ninja, and a Viking who manifest themselves as uh, imaginary friends, basically, Mm. who accompany him on his adventures. And so we're doing that right now, which we're very excited about. Uh, And then kind of the most recent twist for us is we sold a script, a spec script of ours, about um, a month ago, a big science fiction thing, which... Uh, is this Epsilon? It's called Epsilon. I was just reading about robots taking correct. over and their pet humans. I, I, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> robots and their pet humans. It it, uh, it was really exciting. Uh, we wrote a spec, which is rare for us, and it's one of those high-wire acts where you're never really sure how it's going to turn out, and this one broke our way, thankfully, and uh, yeah, we're, we're getting rolling on it, so we're excited. Who bought it? Sony. Okay. Why is it called Epsilon? Uh, the uh, human pets of the robots are, are, all, are, are all named after <laughs> a sorority, actually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just because we thought uh, you know, they'd not? be making T-shirts and, and <laughs> just the <laughs> exactly. kinds of things that go on in a sorority. Uh, actually, every uh, human in the movie is uh, named after a letter of the Greek alphabet. And the guy who turns out to be the hero uh, is, um, is named Epsilon. And so the movie is uh, named Epsilon. Very exciting. That is very exciting. And whose idea for the story was that? 
Uh, Paul and I had always wanted to do a script about a human that was raised by robots and what that might entail. So that's kind of where it came from. And we we just – it germinated for a long time. For a couple years, we sat on it and thought about it. So by the time we actually wrote it, it was this – it was a fully formed idea that had slowly, slowly come together. And at that point, it was just – it was like off to the races. We wrote it very quickly, about a, about a month and a half. And um, – and then sold the darn thing. Can we say darn? I, darn. We, we, we can say we darn. We sure can. <laughs> we can say fuck. Oh, we can. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, my God. You got so excited. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, we sold that gonna... cocksucker. <laughs> well, uh, anyway. I'm glad the motherfucker sold. I was going to ask. Like, who is going to play the robot and who, who are going to play the people? But you probably don't have casting ideas no, yet. No, casting, not yet. We have to, uh, you know, do a little rewrite for the studio and then we have to get a director and then ultimately it will be cast. Um, yeah, no cast. But okay. we, we, we anticipate massive stars. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and G.I. Joe 2? G.I. Joe 2 comes out next March. Uh, stars Bruce Willis and The Rock, um, among others. And, and Channing Tatum, Channing right? Tatum, that's correct. He's a great guy and very, very funny and uh, a wonderful actor. Would you say that about everyone in your movie, though? Uh, sure. I probably would <laughs> in a public setting. Behind closed doors, I would just... No. It was, it was a very cool cast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a very eclectic, very strange. You know, we had like the biggest star in Korea is in the movie. Jonathan Price is in the movie, who's a wonderful uh, British actor. Uh, the Rock, you know, it's just a very strange group. Uh, but they come together and form the G.I. Joes. What happened with well, – it was supposed to be released like last year though, That's right? correct. It was supposed to be released in June. It got pushed nine months and – Essentially, that's because it was a 2D movie and the landscape of the world right now is that for some reason internationally, people are really embracing 3D movies. I think in America, we're tired of – we're tiring of them if not entirely tired of them. They were a gimmick. But because they're new to a lot of these other territories, they're coming on really, really strong. And our movie was 2D and there have been some other 2D movies that had come out uh, pretty close to when ours was supposed to that just really underperformed internationally. And that's where – the, the lion's share of money is being made these days. Uh, used to be that, that, that America was where you made all your money. Now it's overseas can double, even triple uh, national, our, our national grosses. So I think uh, in deference to that marketplace, they decided to slow down, place the movie into 3D, and that's going to take uh, what, Yeah, what does that mean about redoing it, adding a D? Uh, it, I don't think it means much. I just think they convert it. Uh, it, you know, it, it, you can make these movies where you shoot them in 3D some, and then you can make them where you shoot them in 2D and you convert them after the fact. It's now becoming very cost effective to convert them after the fact and audiences frankly can't tell the difference. I know I can't. I, I, my, when I go into a 3D movie, my brain turns off about five minutes in and I forget whether I'm even in a 3D movie. Like it just stops landing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the people in you know, China and India think, but apparently they're, they're ranting and raving to see 3D movies right now. So. Would you believe I've never seen a 3D movie? I wouldn't believe it. Gary, would you I'd believe it? I'd call you a liar. I would believe it and yeah. I'm very proud of you because they kind of suck. Can I ask a question along this line? Absolutely. Sure. I read an article that said that the other reason that 3D was a large reason for it, but the other reason was that the studio realized 
realized that Channing Tatum was going to be the biggest thing in the world because it was like around the time that a couple of his movies were coming out. They, and they blew wanted, up, yeah. They wanted to put him in more. And that uh, well, uh, that was uh, discussed at one point because without giving away too much of the plot, Channing's not in a, in a huge chunk of the movie. Um, but in, in honesty, that was not the reason. Uh, Channing's part was expanded a little bit well before the decision uh, to do that. So his his part had already been beefed up somewhat. The thing is, Channing's career ha- has has really, really taken off. He was in uh, what? Uh, M- well, Magic the, the Vow. He was in The Vow. And then he was in 21 Jump Street, where he showed off a whole new side to himself. And then he was in Magic Mike. So he became a bigger and bigger deal as we as the G.I. Joe post-production process was happening. So there was definitely a push and a desire to please audiences by having him on screen more. Um, and so his part was expanded. But that all happened actually pre-decision to push, which which left us scratching our heads a little bit when it did push because the rumor was, hey, well, they're going to put in more Channing Tatum. They're going to do reshoots and put, it, put him in more. But that's actually not the case. Uh, so – we still have to believe what we're told, which is the same thing the public was told, that, that the 3D was the largest decision for it. Now, we, we're not in the, the, the boardroom at Paramount, you know, <laughs> making these decisions. So, you know, we're not entirely sure exactly what went into it. But, but you know, we're willing to take it at face value what we were told. So, How much say do you have if they make a decision about what direction they want? The, like if they're like, we want more of this, we want more of this. And Absolutely you feel like, none. Like okay, you're, so as, you're as just, a screenwriter, you are in the back half of the donkey costume like you were looking at someone's butt constantly like um so yeah you have no power whatsoever uh you know we were hired to write gi joe 2 we came in we worked with uh, a producer a wonderful producer and a studio and a and a financier a co-financier and our goal and our job is to please them and to please the stars um make sure that they're happy with their roles uh, they and- have say as well the stars absolutely have say. Yeah, they have big say. Well, it depends on how big the star is. But yeah, I mean, someone like Will Smith, for instance, right. can completely control a movie uh, just by virtue of his power. If he doesn't like something, it comes out. If he wants something in, it goes in. Is that something that would be negotiated into his contract ahead of no, time? No, no. I think it's just sheer power and leverage. I just think people don't want to – would not want to ang- – I'm using Will Smith as an example, but there are obviously any number of huge stars that the studio wouldn't want to uh, you know, anger uh, right. because they might need them for future things. Now, if you're – uh, you know, first-time actor or young actor coming up, you have as little power as I have sitting here as the writer. <laughs> you have no power to, to alter anything. But you know, the bigger the star gets, the bigger, the longer the resume gets, uh, the more they can throw their weight around. And uh, oftentimes, you know, the star is the most powerful person on the movie. Right. Yeah. Right. So about the 3D thing, yes. though. I have never. I've been to like things at Disneyland that are 3D, mm-hmm. and it uh, threw you off. Yeah, you I didn't was love done. it. Wait, maybe I haven't. Are you actively avoiding 3D? Like you must be because it's not coincidence that you haven't gone to any. I don't think of myself as actively. Avo- maybe I'm passively avoiding them. There mm-hmm. hasn't been any movie in 3D that I thought I really want to see that. You're like a matador. Like there's a 3D movie coming at you and you just sidestep it with your cape and let it fly right by. <laughs> that, exactly. Because that's the metaphor. Yeah, I'm not going to be That's go- the passive, uh, you know. I will know. not be gored by your 3D movie. <laughs> um, I remember seeing – you know what? I remember going to like an Omnimax movie when I was like five or six. I don't know. Omnimax? What are you talking about right now? <laughs> Seriously. like. What? Okay. At Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, there was this – 
movie where the screen is domed above you. Right. And they sh- showed some kind of like jellyfish thing happening on the screen. Like the it was traumatic of the for you for well, some reason. Well, yes, because when there's no movie showing on this domed screen and you look up, there's like your eye has nothing to fix on. So it made me feel really dizzy. Oh. That really relates very little to the 3D thing. But in terms of movies that aren't just regular 2D on a screen, I saw one when I was six and I was not a fan. You were thrown. Um Makes I don't sense. know. So wait, you're saying though five minutes in, like it doesn't work on you anymore? Well, yeah. I, by the first five minutes, I'm really noticing it. And then my brain somehow just adjusts. And I frankly couldn't tell you one way or the other after five minutes. I mean, is it even like I, you know, I did, I saw Honey, I Shrunk the, the whatever in 3D right. at Disneyland. I did see that. and it, That was in, probably one of the first ones, right? Yeah. The, or but, the and the I think more it had ones. like the seats that do something Maybe when something Maybe that happens. was what was bothering you. Maybe. But I mean, do you actually like, oh, jump, you know, jump out of the way when something happens? I all. mean, it sounds like life is 3D. I don't need more that. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, they're throwing an extra D on there and yes. you're just not happy with it. I you're don't you're know. getting enough D in your life. Movies are big enough for me. Yeah. Just, uh, just in their Well, and there are version. filmmakers who agree with you. I mean, Christopher Nolan has completely sworn off it, said he'll never do it. James Cameron, on the other hand, is convinced that not a single movie will be in 2D in 10 mm-hmm. years. Like, he's really behind it. So it depends on who you ask. Uh, again, my brain just doesn't seem to care. I wonder if it's because we're too old. You're dating us, but okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the Omnimax thing already dated you, yeah, so you're, you're, you're well past that point. And but. I'll have people know, you're not younger than I am, even though. Correct. <laughs> even though you acted like when I mentioned Omnimax, it was from like the 1940s. I was trying to, yeah. Just it was convincing. No, yeah, I know. I, I realize that you don't know what. Uh, Gary, do you have. No, I actually Gary's don't know what. We are. Gary, help us out. Do you know what Omnimax is? Does that um, mean anything to you? No, but I also don't care about 3D movies, so. No, Omnimax it's... is. No, well, I know. I know. Yeah. I understand they're separate things, but I'm saying. Right. For anyone, see, people who are listening are going to think what just happened. Gary was out of the room for a second, so he missed the scintillating Omnimax discussion. Jellyfish on a giant domed screen above our heads. It made me feel nauseous. It was when I was six, and it was at Caesar's Palace. That I just recap. I just explained why I wasn't going to recap it. Topic and now is I making am. people feel nauseous. It's like enough with the Omnimax. Get on to the the, the, the meat of the, this conversation. We've spent a lot of time discussing diarrhea and stuff with Andrew WK. Hmm. So if we're going to talk about things that are nauseating, jellyfish are not even You're up there. You're so right. You have no idea. I do yeah. fear jellyfish. I have, scary, I have a phobia right? of jellyfish. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a phobia of everything in the ocean. But jellyfish is. I feel like is... in the ocean might not have even been necessary for that sentence. That <laughs> you may fair? be right. Okay. I have a lot. I have a lot of phobias. <laughs> but I've always joked that surfing is the thing I'd, I'd be least likely to do in life because it combines about nine of my phobias in one activity. Mm-hmm. So, so list some of them for us. Well, there's the bacteria in the water. There's sharks. There's undertow. There's drowning. There's getting driven into the sand and getting paralyzed. There's uh, you know jellyfish, of course. Yeah. Uh, skin cancer from the sun. Uh, getting cold, hypothermia, you know, going out to sea. I, y- you name it. But you it. did semester at sea. Yeah, but you're on a ship on that in that right, program. Right, but still, just a flimsy. It's not flimsy actually. Vessel. It's many times. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, I know, but you could go overboard. True, you could. I mean, did I wasn't you? Were your phobias heightened? <laughs> no. You didn't have classes that involved looking over the railing. No, no, there was no. Ocean, going, ocean observance going on or whatever that would entail. No. I would think they would make you look at fish and shit. Uh, no. It was actually – Semester at Sea is the, my favorite thing I've ever done. But it was just like college on a ship and it was by no means so oriented toward marine you, stuff. No, Really? It was just really? 
Because I feel like if you study abroad, you'd have to like learn the language. I feel like you <laughs> the <laughs> language of the sea. It's like Little Mermaid. Exactly. You have your Little Mermaid. No, I mean, uh, Semester at Sea has a bunch of professors on, and they're all on sabbatical. And whatever they happen to teach is what is is taught that semester. So it's a little haphazard. Like, they're English professors and drama professors Mm -hmm. and history professors. So, uh, you know, I think maybe there was a marine biology class on there, but only one, and that's not really the focus. The ocean's not the focus. It's more international travel and then all that might accompany that. So it's like the love boat. It is. But but in a more scholastic setting. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's really your favorite thing you've ever done still? Favorite thing I've ever done, yeah. You see, I ev- highly recommend it. To everyone me. I meet does that, to the, says that, to the point that I've almost wondered if it's all just a big a joke. Oh, yeah, oh, like, a joke. No, like, a, like a big inside joke where it's just like – because everyone is so ecstatic and I, I do regret it. My best friend did it and just – it changed his life. Well, he, I mean he came it's – like a different guy. Like, if, if you can afford it – I mean it's not inexpensive. They do have scholarships. But if you can afford it, I tell young people you can't not do it. I mean there's like what is wrong with what, – what, what can conceivably be bad about getting on a ship you know, and going around the world for 100 days visiting 10 countries with a bunch of college students – I mean, on international waters where there are no alcohol, you know, at 21 years old laws. And I mean, it is it's awesome. Like there's just nothing. I mean, I I don't want to stress the alcohol because I I don't drink much and I had a wonderful time. But it was just, you know, life is all downhill after semester. That's actually something that (laughs) you look sad. I know. I did. I know. That's something that comes up on this show. Sometimes I talk about. The fact that college for me was like, I don't know if I want to say the best four. Like, I'm suspicious of people for whom high school was the best four years. Because Because that's awful. Yes. Right. There's nothing worse than high school. Right. But somehow I totally have a different feeling about people for whom college was the best four years. I think because I think of high school as a place where um, what makes you popular are things that, this is very judgmental sounding of me, but things that I don't. Those are not my values, but in college, the things that I do value can make you popular. Like high school, if you're you know a cheerleader and um, and fearless, then you can be popular. Whereas college, to me, was about learning and right. meeting new people and being intellectual and right. being funny and right. all those things and things that matter more to me. Yeah, to at me. least yeah. Too. So for me, college was great, and I don't know if I want to say it's been downhill. But it hasn't been uphill. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it's easy to kind of over sentimentalize. College was stressful, and there were things that weren't great. But but um, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, like, what's not to like? Yeah. Well, so in retrospect, but you've had a career that a lot of people would envy. People who are trying to make it, you know, as a screenwriter. You've had a lot of of highs and. Lows. I don't know if I'd say a lot of lows, but there's been peaks and valleys. Definitely and stuff peaks and valleys. It's a manic depressive uh, occupation. There are ups and downs, big ups and big downs. What, what's been the biggest up and biggest down since then? Uh, the biggest up for me was the Joe Schmo show. Uh, I, I know. It's like my favorite reality show. Allison for, loves it. And for people who don't know what it is, can you explain it? Yes. Uh, so basically, it's the Truman Show in a reality television setting. Uh, so we took a guy, we brought him on an eviction style reality show like Big Brother called Lap of Luxury, where he was going to live in a mansion with nine other people. They would play games, they would vote each other off, and at the end, someone would win $100,000. What we did not tell this person was that he was the only real thing on the show. All the other contestants in the house were, in fact, uh, improvisational actors. Kristen Wiig, before Kristen anyone Wig, knew she was. That's right. We cast Kristen Wiig before she was on yeah. SNL. 
Um, anyway, they were improvisational actors pretending to be reality contestants and performing essentially a parody, a send-up of reality TV. Right. So it allowed us to parody reality TV. This whole show is this ridiculous show full of drama and silliness. And, and then mixed in was this one real guy who had no idea that everybody else was faking. Ralph Garman was the smarmy host. Yes, he was. It was uh, yeah, the eviction ceremony where you throw the plate in the fire. The whole thing, like the the uh, like all hands on the high price call girl, yes, high price hooker. hands on a high price hooker. Oh, that's right. We- so good. I I thought there would never be another genuine reality show after it because it had so perfectly parodied the reality show construct. I mean, yeah, I was and there was wrong, a recent but- there was a recent parody of uh, reality shows called Burning Love uh, on oh, like there were webisodes. Oh yes. And we Natasha had done, Leggero, who was in your yes, second she did, season, yes, was that's in right. it, yeah. And, and our second season of Joe Schmo uh, sent up The Bachelor and other relationship shows. So they were, whatever, probably 10 years after the fact or eight or nine years after the fact doing what we did. And yet the difference being that we had this live element right. mixed in, which made it really fun and exciting. But in your second season, one of the Schmoes figured it out. Yes, she did. Yes. So she was on to us and we had to replace her mid-show. Yvonne, and it was full of Irene, drama. what was her name? Uh, Ingrid. Ingrid. I knew it was something yeah. like that. <laughs> Starts right. with an well, I. Well, so yeah. then you folded her over, though. Yes. So we, that she we, was one of the actors. Once yeah. she figured it out, we brought her in on The Secret. We made her one of the actors, and we brought in a new girl, Amanda, to take her place. And then she had to – Ingrid had to then fool Amanda. So that was – it was – gosh, nothing really like it had ever been done before – very little has been done like it since, and that's why I think it's so memorable for me. It was such a honeymoon. I, I had a wonderful time on that show, as did everybody else who did it. It was it was unique. And how did you come up with the idea? Uh, it was a little – it came out of the fact that uh, my buddy Paul, uh, my writing partner, was working in reality TV, and I was writing screenplays. And he said, we ought to come up with an idea for a reality show sometime. And so it was my scripted background meeting his unscripted background, and we wanted to include both of those in a show. And thus, you know, it sort of it led to the idea of, well, we'll, we'll script it, but there will mm-hmm. be this one unscripted element in, in, at the heart of it. So, And I know that you – like when I think about working on something like that, it would be so hard for me not to just blurt it out. And I I recall you saying something like you're bad at surprise parties and oh things like God. that. Oh my god! Yeah, as well. I hate I so hate practical you, jokes because, because for, yeah, because for anyone who doesn't realize, like there was a whole bunch of not telling the person what's truly going on. Like they, the whole thing rested on that. Oh yeah, for two weeks we were fooling this poor soul, and that just it just ate at me, man. I felt really really guilty because I can barely do a practical joke for ten seconds without saying you know grabbing the person saying it's all you know it's all fake. Yeah. Don't worry, everything's fine. Like I hate letting that thing last, and yet this thing lasted two weeks, and so I was definitely sweating it out. But it ended well, and. Uh, you know, you can still get it on DVD. It's still out there both seasons. And, in fact, it's coming back on, believe it or not. Oh, really? In January, a new, the Joe Schmo 3 is coming out. Did you know that? Have you heard that? I, th- I hadn't heard it. You mentioned that there was a Joe Schmo 3, but you weren't as involved. Yeah, we weren't involved this time because when they called us, we were just too busy. It was literally eight years after the fact of, uh, of the first show or the second season of, the, of, of Joe Schmo. So when it came – and we were just booked. And so – but ultimately it was run by people we love and trust and um, and they're working on it now to get it ready for January. And we're excited. Ralph Garman's the host again. Uh, so that's exciting. What's the Brand premise? new cast. Uh, it is a fake bounty hunter show where this guy <laughs> comes on a show thinking he's he's competing to become a bounty hunter. And in fact, everything is fake again. Mm-hmm. So Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So how did you justify it during – I didn't realize it was only two weeks. But during those two weeks where this this guy, Matt Kennedy Gould, the schmo, is having all these genuine 
reactions to things that are you know he's being manipulated i know how did you justify it well it was i think the most important thing we did was we kept the material very light and silly we didn't we tried not to engage his emotions too deeply i mean we we failed we failed in some cases he was a crier (laughs) he was a crier and when he became a crier i became a crier because (laughs) because i I literally went home to my hotel room and wept to my parents into the phone saying what are we doing to this poor guy uh, but we kept it light and silly, and we knew at the end of the day he was going to be the star of his own TV show. He's going to win $100,000 for sure yeah. just by being cast, and that it was going to be silly fun ultimately. And um, I think knowing those things in, in, in our back pocket made it such that you know I didn't feel like we were experimenting on him per se or, or ruining his life. I felt like – uh, I felt like ultimately we would be able to defend ourselves and he would forgive us, and that's largely what happened. So, And what's been the low, the lowest low? Uh, well, the lowest low is just any time in Hollywood when you, when you just sweat and put blood and tears into something uh, and it dies. It, it's just – which happens often. You can work years on things and have them die or have the rug get pulled out from under you. It's just a devastating feeling because – Unlike if I were to write a novel, for instance, which I have, uh, no one's read it, but I wrote a novel. And but at least a I novel. I feel like some of the people at io9.com have read yeah, it. Yes, they have, or at <laughs> least one or two, because yeah. they did actually publicize it way back when. Uh, anxiety, it's on Amazon. Right? It's called Anxiety. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not. I shouldn't have tr- like overtly tried to plug that. I guess I just did. Oh, but. Pl- this whole thing. Overtly this is plug all this everything. is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, and if you're going to buy it on Amazon, case, click through the banner on my website. <laughs> exactly. That helps out the show. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm we glad do here. we're being transparent. But uh, anyway, but a novel, you know, you get your day in court because ultimately it's a finished product, right? You can put it in front of a person and you say, hey, read it. Like it or not, it's out in the world. A screenplay you can work years and years on and no one ever sees it. That's the sad part. And no one reads screenplays really except for a select weird few people. I mean, pr- mostly people who are writing screenplays will read them. But but most often it's just something that dies a very lonely death on a shelf. No one ever learns about it. No one ever sees it. And because it's essentially a blueprint for something else and people don't go around looking at blueprints. So you can you can just slave for years and years on things and never have them come to fruition. And it becomes extraordinarily frustrating. Even when you get paid to do those things, which is awesome, uh, you know the end goal is to have a movie come out and have people enjoy it. And when that doesn't happen, um, which is most often the case, like most of these things don't make it, it's extraordinarily uh, uh, painful. Does having a partner help? Yes. Yes. We, we always say, well, when one of us is down, the other one picks them up. And, you know, I, of course, the irony being that usually it's the opposite. Paul and I can go negative pretty often. So usually <laughs> when one person's up, the other person just knocks them right down. Like, <laughs> uh, so we have a way of doing that. But, um, but yeah, it, it does because you've got a partner in crime. You've got someone who really least, gets you like, and gets yeah. your exact trajectory. So when you're feeling bad, so are they. And when you're feeling great, so are they. It's, it's just nice to have someone who, who gets you at that moment. I'd imagine it helps it helps up so that you don't feel like my I'm completely invalidated in this moment. True. Like, you what, can blame like, it on I, your partner. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't even mean that, but just the feeling of like I I so much of me was uh wound up in this project, I cease to exist now. That's true. I mean, we're at least one step away from it as writers. I think actors have it the hardest where they're really being judged for just yeah. themselves and that's very hard. At least we're being judged for what we put down on a piece of paper. And as you say with another person, you've defrayed the responsibility fifty percent there. Um it's still hard, but at the very least it's a little diff- diffused. 
fused or dif- diffused, I guess. I was just thinking the other day that I often have problems with defuse, defuse and or diffuse. diffuse. Yeah. yeah, or diffuse. Diffuse, yeah. I feel like I've used them wrong in the past. I'm sorry, people. For whom that happened? No, I think they're okay. <laughs> no, no, they're very. <laughs> there are a few they're out very, there. I, I need to defuse them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so true. See, they're angry. Uh, you also did Invasion Iowa with Shatner. That's true. We did a similar hoax show where we fooled an entire town in Iowa into thinking that William Shatner was shooting a movie in their town. Uh, the whole movie was fake. Shatner was surrounded by a fake entourage. The movie itself we created was a really bad science fiction movie that Shatler, Shatner had purportedly written when he was right before Star Trek, when he was in his early 20s. Uh, so we had a lot of fun with that, and we fooled the townspeople. Some of them you know, got parts in the movie. Some of them were working as like Shatner's assistant and stuff. It was extraordinary, extraordinarily silly and fun, and uh, it kind of came and went in a heartbeat on Spike TV a long time ago, but it's also on DVD. Uh, and, and, and we got a real kick. And working with Shatner was, was really wonderful. I mean, here he is the, the ultimate workaholic. Like he was starring in a major CBS sitcom at age eighty-two, I think. So and, you can imagine. Wow! And don't do you still hang out with him? Yeah, mm-hmm. occasionally. Yeah. Do you watch football at his we house? We do. Or we we sometimes get invited to his house to watch Monday Night Football, and he's an ex, he's a generous host and wonderful. He's got a beautiful screen, and and he always there's always great food, and yeah, and it's a it's just it's just fun. He's 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 a really cool guy. He seems twenty years younger than he is. Um, and, and to me, that's the greatest – That he's someone to emulate. Like I want to be working when I'm super old. I just went to see Vertigo this one time uh, at the American Cinematheque and they had the production designer come up afterwards and they wheeled him onto stage. Like this – Vertigo was made in the 50s and he was 93 years old. And the interviewer started to interview him and I thought, oh my god, this poor guy. Like is he even going to be able to talk? And he started, talked about Vertigo and then the interviewer said, let's talk about some of your more recent films like Million Dollar Baby and like Gran Torino and stuff. And I was like, oh my god. This guy was Clint Eastwood's production designer at the age of 93. And to me, that was like the ultimate goal, like to still be working and relevant and excited about what you do and loving to do it at age 93. Like you can't really beat that. I'm not the guy who wants to early retire, retire yeah. early and head to a beach necessarily. Yeah. See, Adam – well, not a beach for you. No, God, no. It's <laughs> a really awful. good point. Adam, Head to the, a landlocked you know, <laughs> Nebraska. Right. I'm going go to go retire in Nebraska. <laughs> um, Adam talks about how people – Adam Kroll, that is – talks about how people are just living too long these days and the amount of money that is spent between like 85 and 95 for not a very good quality of life just makes it so that like just, you know – Turn in early, and by that I mean die early. And I think I don't want that. I'm greedy. I would like to live as long as possible, and well, then I think possibly forever. And then I do that thing where I try to imagine living forever, but you know the human brain can't imagine that. And then I think that I don't want that. You start to get disturbed. Yeah. Well, no. I just I cannot envision forever. Forever to me is always like oh, up to that certain point, and then I have to take. I have to be like, no, forever is like it's infinity. Like there's no point there. And then the idea of just a perpetual existence is uh, – It's a little creepy. daunting. Yeah, yeah. It's a little it terrifying. It is disturbing. Yeah. It is. Well, what I would say to Adam is, you know, you say, well, who wants to live to be 90, year, 90 years old? And my answer is always 89-year-olds. Like, um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and I mean it's easy I think for Adam or other people to say, well, I wouldn't want to live. But once you're there, I mean I, I know I'm one of my very favorite people is 94 years old, sharp as a tack, and he doesn't want to go certainly. He's still able to get around and has a has a very sharp mind and um Who's so i think it's easy to judge when we're he was a professor on semester at sea in fact and you're still buddies with him still buddies with him yeah he lives up in seattle jim calderwood he's awesome 
Um, and he's he's a role model, um, very active. He was sea kayaking on his 90th birthday. Wow. So I, I wouldn't do that, of course, because that's <laughs> terrifying. What so, if the kayak were to turn over? Oh, my God. No, no. then you're like in a watery grave. And you're 90. You know, it's trapped. like there's yeah. no getting out of it when you're yeah. 90. You're just stuck. And who knows if people would even try to save you. No, they're just they like, might just yeah. cut bait. All right. Yeah, fuck that. Um, when did all <laughs> of your phobias start? And for... I'm going to do that annoying thing where I ask a question and then I insert information, which is sitting before you, it's as if I'm sitting here with Jesse Eisenberg, which really that character in Zombieland yeah. is basically you. It is me, yeah. Um, when did all of the phobias start? Uh, well, you know, my mom always described me as a kid like – you know, if there was mud, I would be so careful before I would step into the mud. Like I was, I was kind of very circumspect about things very young. I just think I got a, I got a double dip of anxiety on both sides of my family. So, and then what happens is when you've got anxiety running through you, it's a little like Velcro. It just attaches to whatever is in your life that happens. Whenever the anxiety pops up and you're around X, suddenly you're now afraid of X. So I think it was pretty early. Like swimming in the water, I had a really bad swimming instructor at an indoor pool in Columbus, Ohio when I was six or seven years old. And I used to get the chlorine up my nose and he was terrible and I felt like I was drowning all the time. And I'd, So swimming for me has never been great. But I just think as you go through life, you're, and if you're an anxious person, that anxiety can glom onto things and it's unfortunate. Fortunate, but but it also uh, you know made for a fun script in Zombieland. So you know sometimes you can you can benefit from your suffering if you're if you're you know making art or I don't know if you call Zombieland art, but you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I'd call it art. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so, but you seem like in the the amount of time I've spent around you, you never really seem to be um, ruled by these anxieties. At well, one I mean, time were you? Well, yeah. I mean what, what I like to say is that uh, when you see someone who's anxious, you will tend not to see someone who's overtly anxious. Anxious people put up a facade and they also kind of uh, design their lives to avoid what makes them anxious. So you, won't, you don't see me anxious, anxious because you're not seeing me snorkeling in open water. Like <laughs> if you saw me snorkeling in open water, you'd see me very anxious. You, you're not seeing me, you know, thinking I'm lost in the wilderness, which my parents saw this summer, like when I was hiking with them. I'm like, we don't know where we are. And I started to have one of my meltdowns. Like, so most people who are phobic, they just simply avoid what scares them. And, and as such, you never, it never really manifests. So uh, and and Zombieland, the fun was it's like, well, take someone who's really agoraphobic and just wants to hole up in his room and then force him to come out by virtue of this crazy post-apocalypse and just see what happens. And that was fun to explore ultimately. Um, With that, the idea was that all of his phobias keep him safe, right? Yes, That's a exactly. skill set. Exactly. It became a skill set. And like that- what were some of the – well, I mean, the he, rules? well, he, yeah, he comes up with all these rules to get through his day. One of them is, you know, cardio, you know, make sure you've got a good cardiovascular system going. So when you have to run, you know, you, you can run away from zombies, uh, you know, a when in doubt, know your way out, like always know where the exit is, always have your escape hatch, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I, it did occur to me that someone who is careful, someone who is afraid of of, of of normal things would be pretty adapted to survive in a world of zombies because you have to be thinking two or three steps ahead. And and that was a little bit of the genesis for Zombieland, you know, that that character being thrown into that environment. And then, of course, you have to, for the, for the virtue of storytelling, you have to pair that kind of character with a really active, fearless character who, who will drag him into to difficult situations. And that became 
Woody, Woody Harrelson's, Harrelson's character, character Tallahassee. So uh, that was kind of what made it dramatically possible. But I think, you know, if, if you're not telling your story, if, if you're a writer and you're not ultimately telling your story in some way or at least using your life to inform your work, uh, you, you may be making a mistake because often it's the stuff that, that you know best and, and, and is the stuff that you can write best by virtue of that. What drew you to writing? Uh, good question. I mean, I, I loved movies. Uh, I, was, I reviewed movies in my high school newspaper. Um, so, I, I, so I both loved movies and kind of liked writing. Um, high school was where? Uh, Phoenix. Yeah. And then uh, ultimately, um, I think with regard to movies, there are a ton of jobs, but very few where you're actually storytelling per se. And I think that's what I love was telling stories. Uh, you know, I wrote the first 26 pages of a Hardy Boy book when I was in fifth grade, The Case of the Lost Valley, it's called. <laughs> and Lost Valley? The Case of the Lost wow. Valley. Um, and it's hilarious because I, I read basically every Hardy Boy book at that age, and I thought, uh, why don't I write my own? And I did write 26 pages on a steno notebook, uh, which I still have to this day. <laughs> and uh, so somewhere in me was that desire to tell stories. Uh, and I think with movies, when, when, if you love movies and you, and you want to be a storyteller, there are not really that many things you can do. You can direct. You can edit. You know, maybe you, you can act. Uh, but and, and the other great thing about writing is you don't need any money to do it. There's no capital involved. You just sit down. You get a piece of software for $100 on it. You get an old laptop and you're, you're off and running. And that's what I did. I was self-taught. So, Your first break was David uh, Caruso? Uh, was he in in there somewhere? No, actually. I'm who not am sure. I oh, thinking? Oh, I know why you're thinking. Okay. Of. My first job was working for William Peterson, who was the star of CSI. That's, yeah. David Caruso is also the star of okay. CSI. William Peterson was the star of the original CSI. Right. He was my first job. I, I was his assistant on a movie, and he was the most wonderful guy ever. Made my life totally easy and wonderful. I got to see what everybody on a movie did, which I do recommend to young people who want to be on movies because until you get on a set and see what everybody does, you have no clue. And I immediately saw what all those people did and, and immediately knew I wanted to write. And then I dove into that. So pretty soon after. Let's probe the phobias more. Okay. Because my audience enjoys <clears throat> um, vulnerabilities okay. and uh, I'm mental socially, illness. socially very phobic. Uh, uh, you know, I couldn't go on a date to save my life like um you know in college i was just a mess when it came to women and i just i really struggled uh i I, they just terrified me i didn't know how to act around them i thought uh that i wouldn't uh you know i just i wouldn't know how to please them or i wouldn't have anything that would please them so i was very socially anxious with regard to that mother nature in general terrifies me like i'm just so not in my element when you get me in mother nature whether it's on a hike or whatever I, I, I like to look at Mother Nature, but yeah, if, through a window, right? Yeah, through a window, That's how I like to or, see. Or out on a nice the, balcony. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I always say I like to appreciate the outdoors from indoors. Yeah, yes. Well, it's it's less fine. it's less itchy, you know, oh, indoors. God. And There's it's, so many fucking bugs. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind bugs, but I like being outdoors when I'm in a, when I when I can rationally look around and say, okay, I'm not going to die. Like nothing's, I'm not going to get lost. Or, but one of the things I love reading all those horrible survival stories about people who get stranded out there, and it's like as long as it's happening to somebody else. Yeah. I'm a, but then when it comes time to put me in a similar environment, I'm just a basket case. Like, and like, yet you went hiking last summer. Well, with my parents. Parents and, 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 and they, in theory, knew where we were going, but it was a hike no one had ever taken before. And then we went off the trail, and that's when I started to melt down. Yeah. Of course, my parents – my dad has made you know, great fun of me since that moment because it was pathetic. But, but he's also sensitive to the fact that I get a little phobic in those situations. What kind I, of meltdown are we talking about? I, I just – I was just – I wanted to turn back. Like I was just – I want to – because I suddenly – 
I thought to myself, I can't find the car. You know, it's like, <laughs> and when you can't find the car, right. and there are no landmarks around, and you're in, and then you don't trust that your dad can find the car. You're because they're they're not like what what, what orienteering you know people like <laughs> yeah. they, they don't know any better than I do once right. they leave the trail. So I did have a little bit of a meltdown. I'm kind of I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not proud of it, but I wasn't like I was weeping or anything, but I was just – I was very uh, anxious. I once almost had a meltdown in the parking lot at the Kodak Center because I couldn't find my couldn't car. Couldn't find your car, yeah. which is – yeah, that – well, I mean that can be a very – especially for a woman at night. You know, it's like – it's is that what you were worried about? It was about a or? daytime and I, it was, I was a boy, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. You just felt embarrassed that you couldn't find I it. I felt – Stupid. Stupid yeah. because I thought, how can I not find it? I should have, you know, written down the, the letter and number. So right. there was that. And it was very hot. I had just recorded a TV thing, so I had on all this makeup, which was I was beginning to feel claustrophobic in my own face. And I had an appointment to go look at an apartment. And I was like, I'm going to be late. Be late. Yeah. My phone is going to run out of juice. I'm not going to be able to call this person. I don't even have any service down here. And I... I just kept walking up and down, and I'm like, everything looks the same. How oh, am I God, ever yeah. going to find it? There's no way. You could be here forever. Yeah. Yeah, in the garage. Yeah. That's, yes, that's what it was. Lost I could in be general. here forever. Yeah, being lost in general is a very aversive feeling. I yeah. mean, it's like, and I'm actually pretty good with directions. I mean, I have a good sense of direction, thankfully. But I, when the minute I, I don't know which is north, south, east, west, I get any sense of I don't know where I am, I, I start to get anxious. Absolutely. The other thing is I had huge panic attacks in my early 20s. That's usually when panic attacks manifest themselves and there is in their early in your early 20s and they were devastating like because once you have a panic attack and you completely lose your shit like then kind of all bets are off i mean it's like you are you're so irrational in that moment and then the minute it ends you're fearing that it's going to happen again so you have a lot of anticipatory anxiety it's going to happen again so i really struggled in my mid-20s which is sheer panic attacks what happened the first time I was actually taking the GRE the first time, taking a standardized test. One of the things that I was put on earth to do, you know, other than write, I was, like, I was very good at standardized tests, pretty much the only thing I've ever really been great at. And so I kind of went in, as I went into every standardized test, kind of thinking I could get a perfect score or close to it. And I got to this weird section with, it was an analytical section, the GRE used to have this thing, and there were hat boxes, and you had to like decide which hats went in which boxes or something like that. Oh, yeah. And suddenly, and there were like eight questions like related to this one concept. Yeah. It, was, it was like that. And normally I was good at those, but suddenly I just couldn't do it And it, because I started to get afraid. I'm like, what if I can't do this? And just by thinking those words, it was like in my head, I was like all of a sudden my, my, my body started to go off like a like – a, you know, just like a five alarm fire, like suddenly I, I was breathing heavily and I couldn't, my eyes couldn't focus and my hands were clammy and my heart was just pounding out of my chest. And, and I, I honestly couldn't even think straight enough. I just melted down on the test. And I came out of there just like, oh my God, like if I can't take a test, which is what I was best at, like, what can, what can I do? Like, and, and then, and then you start to worry, when is it going to happen again? Like, so when, did you not finish? Or did you? I actually I, – I tanked that section and then I managed somehow to pull it together and keep going on the test. And when I got the test back, I did well on the other sections and just completely tanked that section. But um, but still, it was really traumatic. Uh, and then I, I had one going into a job interview and then suddenly I was desperately afraid to go into a job interview to the mm -hmm. point where I just thought – and then I thought I'm going crazy. I'm like if I can't go on a job interview, I can't get a job. I'm going to be unemployed my whole life. I'm going to end up homeless. Like all these thoughts like yeah. start racing through your mind. It was really, really traumatic. Um, um, anyway, 
Well, so no, 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 no. Keep going. Then what happened? So ultimately, uh, I tried Prozac for a little while, uh, for about a year. Um, I, it may have helped. It may not. I'm really still not even sure. Were you? So you were seeing a therapist. During this time or I this? I did. I started to see a therapist around this, time. Uh, around this time. I got really depressed because I was anxious. And I'm not a depressive person, but because I was anxious, I got depressed. And and I started to take Prozac. And I think the, the, the key to getting over it over time was just starting to think of the panic attacks as not something I could avoid or something that I could – that w- would ever entirely go away – but more the kind of thing that was ultimately physically harmless and that would pass like a storm, like you know, a squall that would kind of blow in and then blow out. And once I, once I kind of accepted them a little mm-hmm. bit, I became less terrified of them happening. They seemed a little bit less catastrophic. Uh, I'm still at a point where I feel like they're never gone forever, like they can come back. And, and I just – I don't want to ever talk myself into the idea that I'm cured like because then if one comes back, I'm going to be all the more devastated. But, uh, but over time, I think just the scar tissue and the – just the passage of time helped me uh, cope with them a little bit better. And then they became less frequent as a result. Um, they're very hard. Gosh, I, I feel terrible for any young person who has to go through that. And usually, again, it is in your 20s or late teens. And it's a pretty vulnerable time. Early 20s is always hard. It really is. And I feel like you're not – That's the hardest no time of life, No one tells you that. No. It's I supposed to be totally, exciting. I was it's like, caught off guard by how much it sucked. It really and, sucks. Yeah. The identity you, crisis of getting out of college and being like, wait – I don't know how anything works. Exactly. And and the whole system is set up, life is set up to you know so that experienced people hold the levers of power, you know, and they and then ultimately they retire and then everybody bumps up a level, right? Until finally the young person does graduate into the position of power, but you come out of college thinking you can rule the world and suddenly I was making coffee and making copies and not even doing a good job at it and having people kind of be very condescending and mean to me as I made yeah. bad coffee and bad copies, uh, and and that was just devastating because I, I came out like oh you went to Stanford of, I, where, I did right? You're I supposed did to yeah I was supposed graduate to yeah, I was supposed to rule the world yeah. I was supposed to be you know Steve <laughs> Jobs by the right. age of yeah and instead I was just struggling as a PA just kind of hating my life and and you just there's a there's a process of dues paying that goes on in this in this country in this world where you have to slowly, generally come into your own, and that's hard. Maybe that's what no one is ever really told. It's becoming very depressing. That's okay. That's what I excel at. It's my my thing. (laughs) Maybe no one ever tells you how much dues paying there's going to be. I don't know. I just felt very ill-prepared for what Yeah, it's almost as though you should go to the commencement speech and have the person stand up there and say, get ready. You think (laughs) it's like the good stuff's behind you. About five years (laughs) of shit headed right at you just to have fun. You know, instead of like, it's so exciting. You can you may do anything. It's like, no, right. you can't. You're going to you're, you're gonna do menial level shit yeah. is what you can do. Right. That's what you're going to do. Right. And right. then some of you are going to get scared and flee back to school again because mm-hmm. that's the only safe place. And the rest of you are just going to have shit laying on your head. That's kind of what they should tell you. Yeah, because there's no way you're going to go straight from college to the no. high level job that you think you're ready for, which actually no. you're not ready for, but you're not going to realize that till many years later. Yeah, I mean, there's the occasional Mark Zuckerberg. There's just, but those are always right. the vast exceptions to the rule. So generally, you have to just, you know, you know, have to eat a little shit those first few years. That's why it's shit. so hard. Yeah. That said, 30s way better. Yeah. And 40s better. I mean, for 40s, whole other crises, you know, start to occur. Right. But, 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 you know, it's for not. For men, it's not the same problems. The because my dad turned fifty. We we used to joke that he turned fifty for like three years because I think starting at forty-seven, <laughs> it was just. Oh my God! He he, he had a midlife crisis. 
for maybe longer than three, for a long time. I mean, just like if if my parents were ever to have divorced, it would have been then. Mm. It was just really hard. Tough, it was yeah. tough. He was but he it was, was 50, going through not something. 40, it was fifty. Yeah. But I think now it's forty. Do you think? Yeah. Well, I hated forty. Yeah. I mean, why? Uh, well, it's the number part of it. I think it's the, the the idea that I'm on the back nine now. You know, it's like you're, you're definitely half over at that point, and the the better half's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a guy, there's a little bit this 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 idea that you're going to be less virile and less powerful, and that you're just going to slowly decline to become really pathetic. at forty. You think that? Well, I, I don't think it happens, but I think in your mind it yeah. starts to happen, or at least in the back of your mind, you're thinking, "Geez, you know, my best years really are behind me." Um, and that's terrifying. It really is. It's in its own way. But I've always – like if you'd asked me at 26, I would have been like, oh, I hate getting old. Like it's like 26 <laughs> is so old. Like I'm always feeling that. Yeah. Like, I think the key is to feel you know, younger than you'll ever be as opposed to older than you've ever been. But I always feel older than I've ever been. I'm always feeling like, oh, I'm old. Oh, younger than you'll ever be. That's good. I never thought of that. It's very yeah. cups half full. It is in a way. Are you, do you consider yourself an optimist, pessimist, realist? Uh, I think people have called me a cynic. Uh, I, I am definitely a realist. Uh, I in Hollywood, I'm a pessimist because it's it's part of having a pessimism shield, which is a very important piece of your armor when you go into battle. Because what if, is that? Well, basically, if you expect something to go badly and it does, you won't feel as bad because you're prepared for it. Like, does that actually you expect work? It, not really. <laughs> no, I mean it. It it does and it doesn't. I mean, the great irony of Hollywood is you have to be optimistic to even go out. You have to be unrealistically optimistic yeah. to even come out here because it's such a glamorous job in theory that it invites all these people and there are very few jobs to be had and so a ton of talented people don't make it or really struggle to make it and and so you almost have to be a Pollyanna-ish person to even try so in that sense I am optimistic um I'm optimistic about the state of the world much more than most people believe it or not really I I think that the world's much better off right now than it's ever been in history for sure I mean it's like if you were to go back to any time in history before now things were a lot Worse in measurable, you know, quantifiable ways. So I do think we're at the we're at the best we're at time to be living ever, and that will continue to improve. In what way? I actually agree with you when you put it that way. But what kind of things are you thinking? Well, for about? instance, if uh, I did, I do this thing. It's kind of a uh, I don't have it with me, but it's like it's like picture what this country is like. There is a country, okay, and that country has you know no cars, and and everyone lives to be thirty five years old, and there's uh, uh, child pornography is essentially legal. There's no civil rights. You know, women can't vote. Uh, African Americans can't vote. You know, it's like or, or whatever. You know, minorities can't vote. Uh, there's no air conditioning. There's no television. Like all. The, and I say all these things, you think, oh, God, what an awful place that would be. And the answer is it's America in 1900, like yeah. that that is what life was like. So it sucked. Like, again, by there was the dentistry was sucked. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, people got polio. You know, just things have measurably gotten better. I mean, we have all this angst always that we're going over a cliff and that the world's about to end. And, and I've tapped into that, certainly, with regard to our projects. But if you step back, I do think this is the best time ever mm-hmm. to be alive. Like, yeah. And I think every age was afraid of where, like, oh, no, we're becoming too modern. It's Absolutely. cold. This, this this telegram is going to make it so we never <laughs> talk to each other in person or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's we're, we're a, uh, a world of bitchers. And, and, and that's okay <laughs> because that's what drives us to make the world better, right? If we were all happy and accepted things the way they were, things would never improve. So it's good that we bitch and that we're unsatisfied. But And I also think every era always 
thinks that, you know, the previous era had better morals. You know, it's like, oh, which is such things bullshit, are falling apart. I Kids think. are terrible yeah. these days, which is all BS. People are always just people, you know, and they'll always yeah. be people. So do I, you think that this new crop of youngsters, though, ha- is more entitled or is, has more trouble paying dues than in the past? I really don't. No, I don't. I mean, I think we're Maybe certainly we're getting older. Parents are easier on them than they've ever been. But I, the young people I know are awesome. I really do. I think they're awesome. And I think they're no better or worse than any generation before. Uh, they make the same mistakes. They, uh, Yeah, they've grown up in a slightly different way with different technology at their fingertips and probably a little more lenient parenting and stuff. But but I, I don't think they're any better or worse. And I, I hate curmudgeonly old people who think that the, you know, the new generation sucks. Like, I just think that's just a terrible attitude. Um, do you want to have kids? I still do. Yeah, I still do. I'm getting up there. But, yeah, I really do. I would like uh, some kids at some point, I think. Yeah. Um, let's see. Where to go now? Um, well, I, Do you I, want kids? I do want kids. And I'm getting up there. Well, I mean, there there comes a point when, you know, kids have to really become a priority as you get. I mean, in the old days, you'd have kids at 22 and you wouldn't think. But nowadays, as we start to age, you really, I mean, guys don't have biological clocks. And yet right. at the same time, I don't want to be Rod Stewart, you know, with my, <laughs> you know, 65 with a two-year-old. Like, right. I really don't want to do that. I want to be able to be young enough to play with my kids and have fun and not die before they're too young to, you know, draw on my wealth of advice, you know, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But so it's not, I mean, women have the, the biological clock, men have more of, uh, they have a similar clock. It's just not quite as hard and fast. Uh, I just worry that I'm going to be too tired <laughs> I, you know, I feel like so tired now. I know. And yet what I hear is no, all of a sudden you'll have energy for it. Probably, yeah, I hope, I guess. I mean, I guess there are two schools of thought. Either you can have the kids early and then enjoy your retirement in your 50s and 60s, or you can, you know, enjoy your 20s and 30s and just go all out and then just, you know, just sacrifice to yourself, to your kids from that point forward. Yeah. Well, I actually visited a baby yesterday. Um, How how did that work out? Well, I think of myself as someone who's good with babies, right? So these are friends of um, Daniel, my boyfriend, and... We went to go visit them and their new baby. Ooh, so this was kind of a test for you guys. In a weird, weird way, a test for you guys where you were like, well, let's see what a baby's like. Not really. And, I mean, yes. Unofficially. As much as I, I don't want to admit that, but yes, I think it was because I was like, oh, see me and how great I am with a baby. <laughs> so anyway. And it didn't work out well? Fucking baby cried. <laughs> I have a the very similar time story. time I was holding the baby. Uh, I have a very similar story. Same thing happened to me one yeah. time. And it's, uh, that's a devastating feeling. Right. But it's not your fault. <laughs> that's what they were trying to tell. Oh, it's the baby. needs changing. She's tired. She's this. But then when Daniel held the baby. He calmed down. Yes. Oh, no. Really, like, really great with the baby. Now, I don't know if for him this was a test as well. But then I started thinking today, what if, like so many things... He just takes care of that whole situation, the whole rearing of the child. And, like, that's not really what I want, but, hey, oh, whatever. If he's really good at it yeah. and you suck, you better pass I, that I baby just, on. I, yeah, oh, I just never envisioned that it was going to go down like that. I have multiple friends who are uh, stay-at-home dads. It's becoming m- much more common, and there's no stigma attached to it anymore where there once probably was. Uh, so there's no there's no shame in that. That's awesome. I, I mean, don't think of myself as some frigid, non-nurturing person, though. <laughs> but the baby thought of you as that. Evidently, the baby <laughs> – I, but I mean, really, like that really is fundamentally 
not at all how I envision myself. I think of myself probably as God's gift to motherhood. It's what I was born to do. I mean, not really, because I would have done it sooner if it's really what I was born to do. But I think that it's... You're taking one specific case and you're blowing out of proportion. Like, that baby probably was needed, needed a change What if the baby like... spoke for all babies? <laughs> no, it really didn't. What if it sensed something? No, it what really if I, didn't. What if there's nervousness coursing no, through no me? No, no way, no what way. What if I had poisonous milk? It's just not the case. I pro- <laughs> <laughs> well, you may, I guess. I mean, I'm not going mean, to say Who's that to you say? don't. I don't but, know. Uh, but, but at the same time, you know, go go hang out with a hundred babies, and if you know a bunch of them, it's like any you know experiment. <laughs> right. You gotta you gotta experiment. You're right. A this bit. is just anecdotal. It's anecdotal. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite stories ever. Yes. Didn't you give a baby a gift? Yes. That did not go over well. Yes, I did. Okay. I gave a three year old girl. <laughs> A book. I'm laughing. Already. You know what the, the mm-hmm. yeah. I I went to uh, my friend's three year old girl's birthday party, and I like to get books for kids. So usually, what I'll do is when they're born, I'll get them, you know, go dog go and pet the rabbit or whatever, you know, like. But and then their second birthday, I get them more books, and then by their third birthday, I'm running out of books. You know, I already get. <laughs> so then I start to get them books for when they're older, and just figure, you know, they'll be able to read them someday. It's great. So. So this girl's now three. I've bought her ten books already, I think. At least that's my memory. And so I go to the bookstore and I'm like – basically I'm thinking, well, what books did older girls like? You know, It's like I don't know. You know, I, I never read you know, books that girls liked. I was always reading the Hardy Boys. So what book did I get this three-year-old girl and give to her on her birthday without even looking, cracking the cover to see what it's about? But are you there, God? It's me, <laughs> Margaret. <laughs> now, Story of a girl's coming of age. Do you want to tell period. the audience for the? Yeah, okay. It's about a girl did. getting her period. Yeah, yeah it's about a girl much. getting her first period. Um, <laughs> and so I gave this gift to a three-year-old, uh. and she opened it up in a room full of mothers with their three-year-olds, you know, all sitting around, and it, they've never forgotten it. I was the butt of many a joke yeah. uh, from that day forward. Yeah. You just you didn't even you didn't even look it up. They or- said. Well, Uncle Red, what an interesting choice. Like I just I, I'd never looked it up. I just I just knew girls. I remember girls liking it right. when I was younger. Like so I just bought it. Anyway, it is a classic. I and, enjoyed it. And and you know, the girl's now thirteen. Maybe it'll come in handy Maybe. at some point. You know? Except I thought I wonder if they've updated it because the sanitary napkins People who know Judy Bloom know this is an issue. The sanitary napkins mentioned in the book okay. are like the old fashioned oh, kind that so had a belt even... and stuff. People, some so people listening probably don't even know. I think they might have updated that. Oh, my gosh. I know. See, I bet that you That could know. be just that, scarring. This actually leads me into an email that I wanted to okay. read that I got today. By all means. Um, let's see here. Allison, as a longtime Allison Rosen is your new best friend listener, I have to tell you that your podcast never fails to be worth every minute I listen. I've been on board since day one and have not missed an episode yet. I always enjoy the open and frank discussions, typically funny, but sometimes delving deep into some serious areas. I do have to apologize that I'm slightly late listening to the latest installment, so this email is not exactly timely. Uh, It's totally okay. One discussion thread prompted me to write in today. On the Sarah Schaefer podcast, you had an exchange about labia. This is a subject, unfortunately for women, seldom discussed. I'm one of those guys who does like large labia, and I'm fortunate to have a wife who was... Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Blessed with them. (laughs) Oh, no. Your reaction to the mention of large labia was not what I thought it would be. You reacted in disgust and then added a quick, though not particularly believable, retraction. In the next podcast with Elizabeth Lame, you had a great exchange about plastic surgery. I agree with where the conversation went that most plastic surgery is not good, but that it can be used when repairing damage or in cases where a person's health is at stake. Here I have to say I'm a guy that thinks fake breasts are not attractive. I do like them 
big or small, but not altered as an aside. I think your nose looks perfect. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, do, I don't like my nose, but anyway. Uh, while your podcast is comedic, I know you take it seriously. You may or may not realize the influence you have on people's opinions and the impact you have on women, women's girls' opinions of themselves. I think the reaction you had to large labiac... <laughs> Uh, could lead some to resort to labiaplasty. How unfortunate that some people don't believe that they are beautiful and that we all have things big or small that, to paraphrase Elizabeth Lame, makes us makes us who we are. Uh, okay, here's the thing. I do not recall having any reaction to large labia, nor do I recall the large labia discussion. Gary, you do. What happened? I. It happened. I don't and remember. I had a reaction of disgust to the notion of large labia. I don't remember it in that great of a detail, uh-huh. but it, this definitely happened. And I, when when I read this email, I was not confused. I okay. remember this conversation. Well, I don't she, remember I know that she had accidentally nicked her labia, and exactly. she said it was like the most painful thing ever. And then you brought up a book about large labia. Somebody I did? somebody brought up a book that that they had seen. I, I'm fairly sure it's you about women who were posed in these weird oh no it was her okay yeah Sorry. it was like no no it's okay they're, i think they're squatting over the camera or something yes maybe that's what i had a reaction of disgust to because the notion of large labia i have no reaction other than a very mature giggling i think it was the squatting i think there was a comedic uh, element to yeah. that part of the conversation well, that I, could be what he's referring to i just uh, want I, yeah, well, I, I mentioned that I'm phobic, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> for those of you not in the studio, I'm actually hiding under the desk right now. This whole topic has thrown me. Uh, no, I don't have any comment. I was really? just no, I don't have any real comment. No, yeah. I mean I think it's very a nice, sensitive email he sent in. It and is. It's a good point, I guess. I just want to apologize to anyone who may have been offended by my reaction. You're a to monster. That. I guess I'm a cold, unnurturing <laughs> monster, and babies see into my heart. Wouldn't that be awful if you thought you were a really good person that turns out that you were a monster, though? Well, I mean, they say everyone thinks they're a good person. I mean, right. That's, I know. I just read a big book on the Nazis, and they all thought they were doing good, like in their own twisted minds. Like, so it, that's true. That said, what you're a good person. It? The big book of you're Nazis. You're a good person. Thank I, you. I, I read uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich oh, yeah. in my car on CDs, which is actually 57 hours long. Like, I spent about four and a half months with the Nazis. It was like the Reich was rising and falling in real time. Yeah. Um, and that was too long to spend with Nazis. Like, Who it kind narrates of, it? I don't know. Some a wonderful guy. Like it's 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 really well done, and it's a great great piece of history. It's a great book, but it's a little too long to spend with those jerks. And it was a little too much rise, not enough fall. Like I wanted more fall because it was that was the revenge portion uh-huh. of the book you want when the they really ends? got what was coming to them. And of course, they did get what was coming to them. But the emphasis on the book was probably was definitely on the rise, and yeah. so I didn't get enough enough fall. payback. Hmm. So you need to read some kind of. Uh... In your face, Nazis book. Well, I mean, it's certainly, uh, I'm glad I read it, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend running out and doing it. At least not on CD, where it dominates right. you know every car ride you take for four and a half months. I took a class speaking of college called Nazism and Communism, and sometimes I think to myself, I can't believe I took that class and got a decent grade because I remember pretty much zero about it. Like I feel like I should read The Rise and Fall or hear. Yeah, I, I don't have 57 hours to spare. Like that, well, I mean, that the, hit, I mean, I know you know in broad strokes, but the actual if it makes you feel any it, better, like Hitler was a real dog lover. Dogs loved Hitler. Hitler so that loved doesn't dogs. Make me feel better. No, no, I'm not saying it makes you feel better, <laughs> but I'm just saying 
Like, no, actually, I don't I guess it wouldn't. But I guess my point is just because a baby reacts poorly to you doesn't mean you're a bad person because Hitler, you know, you would have seen Hitler with a dog this had you known nothing <laughs> else. And you would have been like, here's a funny guy in a mustache and the dog just loves him. He must be a great guy. Like a lot of women are like, I, if my dog likes yeah, the guy, he right, must be great. Right. Like not a good uh, not a good criteria so to use to judge In somebody. this scenario, is Daniel Hitler? Oh, because the baby liked yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I guess you're right. So you're dating Hitler. Yeah. This is going to be a really rev- revelatory night for you. Yeah. No, I think the baby could have been Hitler. <laughs> Easy. Easy. Uh, future Hitler. That's right. And, and so the baby has to be done away mm. with before uh, he does something in the future. That's right. Bad. That's right. It's like a time travel. I know. It's like Looper, but I haven't seen that, so I don't know if it's actually like It's really Looper. good. Looper's really? Good, yeah. How's, have you seen Argo? No. I want it's to see Argo. Awesome. Yeah, people are saying that. I, I'm very excited to see it. Hmm. There's something I need to say about dogs or Hitler or babies, and I don't remember what it was. Dogs, Hitler. Like babies. Hitler was a vegetarian. Yeah. It's another one. Like uh, anyway, I don't know what, why am I going on about oh, Hitler. Cause Just because I was saying, I read a lot wouldn't it be him. awful if you think you, if you you're thought a good you're a person, person you're actually, actually a, bad. a horrible person? Yeah. But you know what it is? Here's the difference between me and Hitler. This is the first time I really God, I nailed it down. I hope there's more than one. <laughs> See, I think I'm a good person, and I really it really bothers me the idea that anything I've done might hurt someone or that I'd cause someone pain. I feel like Hitler had more justification for, like, I'm do- I- this might be harming someone, but it's for the greater good. I'm, I don't even right. look at stuff for the greater good, really. I'm just on an individual level hoping I don't hurt someone. But then I back up and I think, am I actually a jerk, though, because I'm just afraid of confrontation? Like, do I really not want to hurt someone or do I not want them to be mad at me? It's both. Well, I, I really like the idea of you just trying to be good on a person-to-person basis because I think that's so much of life really is that. I think if you're just a good person on a person-to-person basis, you don't have to be a great person. Just be cool. Right. Just be nice on a on a person-to-person basis and that makes you a good person, right? I mean, I I'm hope. With hope. All right. Well, now here's where it gets weird then. Okay. I, okay, so people don't know this, but you and I briefly dated. We did. Way back when, not way back, but I mean a long time ago. When I was living in ago. in New York, what nine or nine years ago, maybe something like that. Not that long ago, was it? It well, may it have was, been. It was, it was two thousand. Would have been two thousand seven, maybe three or four. It was no, no, no. I don't think so, unless you'd like it to be. I don't remember exactly. It was it was many years ago, many moons ago. No, because I it was when I was working at Time Out New York, and I got hired at the end of two thousand four. And I know based on where I was sitting mm. that it was two thousand seven or two thousand eight. Really, could have yeah. been that late. I, <laughs> why, why are you laughing, Gary? I know based on where I was sitting. What does that even mean? Well, because when I worked in the music section, I sat in one part of the awful office. Offless? No, the awful office. Did you guys have a date at your desk? <laughs> no, but I... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I remember... No, but I remember leaving work to go meet you at um, the Gramercy, and I remember the desk that I had been sitting at before. Thus, think, that would have put it around 2007, 2008. Maybe yeah, I think, 2006. I think you're absolutely but, right. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. So anyway, though, yeah. So we we the briefly reason dated. I, I yeah we very yeah very briefly dated and and then have been friends ever since. Yes, but I worry that maybe I wasn't a decent person to you. Oh my God, no. Oh, no, you were very you were more tell, tell than me decent. about that. No, you were great. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, oh, good. you're a very, very cool person. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah. No, I don't. Are, are you, 
Are you seeking validation right now? Um, no, I'm trying to apologize. Oh, please. But I okay. Here's the thing, though. This is something that comes up a lot for me. Is that there are people where I think I should really apologize to them and explain. Is this part of a twelve step thing? Are you going around apologizing to people in your life? No. (laughs) Isn't that part of it? Yeah, it is. I think it's the the eighth step, maybe or ninth, eighth or ninth. Um, No, it's not that. But it is like it's just you know part of my sort of. Uh, daily dressing down of myself that I like to experience. Um, no, I'll just think about an experience and I'll think that maybe I would have wanted more clarification if I had been the other person than I gave the person or whatever. I'll just feel like I, you know, I probably should have explained that better. Or I should apologize to them. And then I'll think I should write them an email. And then I think, wait, maybe I already did. And then I think, but if I already did, I wouldn't be wondering about it. So as a rule, every time I have that thought where I think maybe I, it's like either I never apologize or I apologize like five times. So I was convinced that I must never, I must not have. But then all of a sudden I remembered today, wait a minute, I think I did send you an, an you? apology an email. Yes. Email? Because I remember, yeah, I said, I said that I imagined that you were probably thinking I f- flew across the country f- for this bitch or something. And then you wrote back and you're like, well, pretty much, but not the bitch part. <laughs> Did I actually? Yeah. You've dug up this email. No, You've got no, it. You're no, about no, no, to read it. I, have, I don't. Um, I, I, today I almost went back, but then I, I have trouble reading old emails. It makes me feel yucky. I'm not even sure. Does, does I don't know. I'm just asking because I don't know. I guess I haven't looked how far emails go, go back. Do they go that far back? Like I would Gmail keep I think that? So. I, mean, I know on your computer. All the way back. It does go all the way back. Yep. Um, interesting. Uh I don't recall what your uh, uh, this particular exchange. Oh, maybe I imagined. No, I don't think. No, I, I mean I'm it. sure you didn't. Yeah, but I, but I, think... I but I don't recall it. I, but I certainly don't recall you needing to apologize for anything. Okay. Like, uh, yeah. N- no, not in the least. Oh, great. Yeah, maybe maybe it was I who needed to apologize. No, I don't, like, no, I don't. No, no, no. You didn't need to apologize. But I do think we can. I think. Look, I think there are a lot more good people in this world who are kind of worrying oh, I wonder if they, than there are bad people yeah. who are, are, are oblivious to the, the harm they caused. Mm-hmm. And I think you are uh, – I mean I think we're both good people who have not, are not – I mean who are probably overthinking right. things in life yes. as opposed to the bad people who, who never who don't who under- think of anything. They, they yeah. underthink. Just the fact that you're thinking about these things in general right. I yeah. think I means think you have I a good just... – you know, amount of, of – you've got a good guilt gene and a good you – know, I mean in a good way, meaning right. like when you do bad things, you feel guilty and you – yeah, and you're empathetic. You think of other people's feelings and things. So I think that is a good thing. Yeah, I think with us, I just felt like, you know, you were living here. I was living in New York. You did. You you came all the way to New York, and I just feel like I probably owed you more of a frank. Maybe I worried that I'd led you on, or I just wasn't really talking about like what I was feeling or what was going on. Yeah, I think I worried that I'd led you on maybe. I don't know. I th- and I also think I don't know that I ever explained this, but I um, had at that time just stopped drinking. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And I actually was going to meetings. It's funny that you say oh, the Oh, gosh. So I thing. joked about the, the AA thing and, and, and I was, yeah, there was but an element I, of truth in there that. There was an element of truth in that. And – I oh, um, foot in mouth. I feel <laughs> horrible over here. No, please I'm don't. I'm a monster. This, this is, is what I mean, Hitler did. This, this is, is way Hitler worse did. than a baby reacting poorly to me. I made an AA joke on it. No, a- it's totally fine. Please. it is. No, please don't feel weird about that at all. 
you, I can tell from your face that now you're feeling weird. No, I just feel like I should. Don't. It's because it's not. It's ne- never a laughing matter. That the apology step actually is part. I was joking about it just in the context of of, of you saying about talking about this, but but, um, but I wasn't doing it as a step. Okay. Yeah. So it, if it that really makes were my that, cruel and sensitive joke feel so much better. <laughs> well, if you if you would like the shoe can be on the other foot. I used to think fucktarded was a very funny word, and you said that you're not at all a, a fan of people using tard as a joke because— I don't love that. Yeah, I never say that word. Because have... did, don't you volunteer at a camp for— No, uh, no. I mean, I, I have volunteered at a camp before, but it wasn't for people with— uh, but I have worked for I have worked for a little bit— I, mean, I just volunteered a tiny little bit at a charity for people with, with mental— uh, um, disabilities or whatever or developmental disabilities but uh you know i i hear when it comes to humor mm-hmm. i don't tend to love humor that comes at the expense of someone who got stricken with something that could have just as easily stricken me or a friend and stuff and i have friends who have uh children who are developmentally disabled i over the years and i've had friends who had brothers and and to see how courageous they are and how those people are and uh, you know, it's it's the there but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. I don't love jokes about AIDS. I don't love jokes about cancer. And, you know, I just – I never find them that funny. It's like like a show like Family Guy, which I love, and it's not like I hold it against them. But they will make jokes about cancer and AIDS and, and being retarded and things like – and it's always at that element of the sh- moment of the show – I don't get I don't get offended and angry as much as I do. I just don't find it funny, mm-hmm. and I just feel like I wish they'd taken that ten seconds and made uh, a joke that doesn't come at the expense of of someone who's struggling. So, I guess in a way, my AA joke, now that I think about it, would fit into that category, which makes me feel bad um, because clearly alcoholism is a terrible thing that is not uh, you know a choice. It's visited upon you. By, you get an addictive personality, and then and then alcohol mixes into it, and you've got a problem. But um, but general, I just don't love humor. I love humor at the expense of others if those people are being jackasses, if by choice they're being like <laughs> yeah. they need to be made fun of. But I don't love humor that makes fun of people who had bad things visited upon them. So um, see, I, I stuck my foot in my mouth with, with my fucktarded Did people uh, get on your case for that then? Did people? Well, no, just you. Oh, 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 I did. Sorry. Did <laughs> no I have, one got on my. No, that's what I'm saying. No I one did, got on my case. Did I read you the riot? When was that? No, I don't remember it that. was the it was the first night we met. Actually, oh my god, you, know, you did not read me the riot act. But in the same way that you feel now, with the feeling like you put your foot in your mouth. At that time, I think I felt like I put my foot in my mouth. But so anyway, um, the the weird thing with me though is that I still am very unclear about was I an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? I don't. Like that label or it's not just a label like that whole thing never quite fit. Basically, I but I did feel like I was drinking too much. Things were getting out of control. But Mm. in a way that there's plenty of other people who are carrying on with that lifestyle in New York that I, you know, was that I enjoyed for a period of time. But for me, it was just I I was filled with self-loathing and it wasn't working for me. And I kept saying I would like to go out tonight and not drink. And then I would drink. And then I was making really poor choices relationship-wise. And so there was all this stuff going on. So I went to a few meetings just to kind of get – just to see what it was about. And – is there a religious component to AA? There is. Is there not? Is no. It, is it, I mean, was it originally use... a Christian organization? I can't remember. I'm asking because I, I, I don't know. I don't know, actually. They I do use the, the word yes, – no. I, it was not originally? No. They use the word God or higher power, 
but it can be anything to you. Like the religion part is sort of, it's just, it's almost a semantic thing, I would say. Um, but so anyway, I was just like, I, I would like to see how other people deal with curbing compulsive behavior, essentially. I didn't put it in those sort of robotic terms at the time, but it helped me quite a bit. But so anyway, that had just happened, but I never did the steps. Um, but apparently I do them on my own. But that had just happened like right when I met you. And it was the first time probably ever that I was hanging out with someone in a date setting and not drinking. Mm. So I did not – I was so self-conscious. Like all the things that drinking had suppressed, the self-consciousness, the – just everything. Inhibitions. Yes. You know, that – yeah. Everything was suddenly like – like my nerve endings were so like just I was just everything was new to me and it was it was just weird and overwhelming and difficult and I remember at one point sitting um sitting down near you and thinking this would be the time that if I normally were that if I were drinking I'd be like like my body language would be so different it would be so much more inviting and um, come hithery, right? Versus well, now that I'm like stone cold, yeah. Come hither, stone cold, stone cold, sober. I'm like I almost I think my arms are crossed and my leg, legs. You know, I'm very like I guarded. Well, you know that they're, you know, I I don't drink much. I I drink, but not much. So. Uh, I've been in a lot of social situations over the course of my life, and this is not just dating, but it's cocktail parties or whatever, where I'm anxious and mm-hmm. I'm a little phobic and a little anxious and just not feeling great. And I think that alcohol would take that the edge off that. I, I really do. Um, I mean, someone used to joke that you know, if it weren't for alcohol, that you know, that the species would die out because no one would ever get laid without the alcohol because no one would be able to, you know, just kind of get get right. over the inhibitions that they have. Um, I, I do think that alcohol can be a crutch a little bit. I mean, oh, yeah. I, it, it certainly can, or at least can, can, but it can also, it's also can be harmless too. And just a little something to just take the edge off of that, you know, the person who's, ju- you know, you're judging yourself or you're anxious or whatever. So, um, I think responsibly it's, you know, if, if used responsibly, um, it's, it's fine to do those things. And that's not a, not a bad thing at all. Uh, anyway, who knows? Yeah. I think I just felt like like and I knew that you didn't drink much or at all and I just felt like this I don't know why I didn't just tell you though. I felt like this like what well this is too too harsh but like this like out of control washed up party girl who was all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, with someone who was like much more who I it's truly wished fun. that I yeah, you know, like it's funny. the true you, me was that other person. If it means anything, you didn't come across that way at all. I mean, I think again, you, when you're in your own head, you're, yeah. you're feeling a lot of things where you're just perceiving them. Um, I mean, I think part of what alcohol does is make you a little less self focused. Uh, you know, to the yeah. point where so you're not judging yourself and not wondering every little moment. And right. then maybe, you know, when you've had it for a long time, then suddenly in its absence, all that stuff just comes I, to the fore even I'd more. I never dated without it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, when I say I don't drink much or often, basically I've never been drunk. I've never, right. I've never thrown up. I've never had a hangover. Uh, generally when I drink, two drinks is, the, is my limit. And that never gets me more than just somewhat buzzed and a little sleepy. I get a little sleepy. So I, I – but but that's enough though to make me but a little how, more at ease for sure. 
have you ever been tempted to keep going with it? No, I have. Uh, I just have this kind of self-limiting. If, if you've ever ridden a Segway scooter, have you ever ridden a Segway scooter? It's a very strange analogy. But when you ride a Segway scooter, they they go only 12 miles an hour. And you can kind of lean forward on it and try to go faster and faster and faster. And when it starts to hit the 12-mile-an-hour limit, it just gently kind of pushes you backwards and it slows itself down. It's like you just can't you, – you can just kind of feel it ease back. And that is built into my personality. It's like when I start to feel myself getting a little too fast, a little out of control, almost without even wanting to do it or needing to do it, my body just says, you know what? Let's dial it back. No, no let's not have that next, that hmm. next sip. Um, let's not push it. Now, some people reach that same 12-mile-an-hour limit and it's like now pedal to the floor. It's like yeah. they, they, they start to get less inhibited and want more to drink at that stage. And for some reason, I got either blessed or, you know, whatever, something with that gene that just said, that says almost automatically bring it back down. Um, and so that's why I kind of get to that two drink limit. I start to get lightheaded, start to get sleepy, start to get a little out of control, silly. And I just back it right off. It's really weird. Do you have curiosity about what it would feel like to throw up? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I know what it's like to throw up, yeah. so no curiosity there. Uh, you know, hangovers. I know what it's like to have a bad headache. You know, so no curiosity there. The, the only drug I don't. I've never smoked pot. I'm really a square. But the only drug I ever had that I just fell in love with and was really addicted to within about three days was Demerol and was in the mm-hmm. hospital after I had appendicitis. And my God, I love Demerol. Like I literally <laughs> didn't want to leave the hospital. It's, is Demerol hospital heroin? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a really Never strong have I killer. felt better. Yeah. I mean, it was administered. This was back in the late 80s. I got appendicitis. They had to administer the Demerol with a syringe to your butt. Like, so it was literally a shot in the wow. ass. <laughs> and after three days, I almost had needle craving. Like, I wanted that needle to go into my butt. Like, you know, it's like as terrible <laughs> as that sounds. Like, because I was so desperate for that feeling. Like, and I what was already feel? feeling bad. Yeah. It made me feel like I, when I, when I watch train spotting, like, I think, I think hair. Must make people feel. It made me full of warmth and joy and carefreeness and just the thought that nothing was wrong in the world. Like it was so good wow. and so relaxing. So and there, were, there was not one care or problem I had in the world. And that's why when it came time to leave the hospital, I remember very vividly it was like there was this question of am I staying for the fifth day or do I go home on the fourth day? Appendicitis used to be a bigger deal than it is now because they didn't have the, the arthroscopic thing. And I remember thinking, am I. I remember them asking or, or it, it being an open question and me thinking, oh, God, I hope I can stay one more day. <laughs> like I really thought that. And, right. and I like I didn't want to go home. Like I didn't want to go back to my life. I just wanted to lie in bed and have this stuff injected into me. And it gave me this amazing window into addiction, like an understanding of, well, now I understand why people who are addicted to cocaine have a tough time getting over it or heroin or the more serious things. And it's because or even alcohol. It's because when you feel that good, nothing compares. Like nothing in my life really except for semester C, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, but, <laughs> but nothing really ever compared to that Demerol. Like even sex in a way because sex is it's, – it's, you know, it goes and then it's fleeting then it's over. But that Demerol was like so awesome. I, I would have traded anything for it at that moment. And the thing, four days, four days. The thing about a substance is that you can control it. I think there's that you thing. You think too. you can. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Let me rephrase. You think you can. Right. But meaning unlike the other like natural euphoric things you might experience in life. Life is either giving it to you or it's not. Yeah. You're not really this is something that you can have a little bag of it or a little whatever of it. And you can you can dose yourself as you want. Right. And for 
someone who has an addictive personality and is a control freak. That is like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's very tempting. Yeah, because you're not only able to control it, but then you're able to receive an immediate reward yeah. for it. Um, and then when you feel bad, I mean, ultimately, I think what drugs do too is they help you escape the crap of your life. I mean, it's it's escapism, I and mean, just like yeah. going to the movies is, or playing a video game, or or traveling sometimes, you know, whatever. It's just an escape from the crap of your normal life, and and it's almost instantaneous and. I just think how weird to think of this. I was 5'11", 119 pounds at the time. Like I had appendicitis. I was the skinniest kid in high school who then got appendicitis and lost like another 10 pounds. I'm lying in this hospital bed. Like I literally must have looked like I was dying. And I just – the thought that I didn't want to leave is very terrifying in retrospect. So what happened when you left though? Did you Totally fine. Totally fine. I didn't have withdrawal. I think it was just – it was not that long into it. I mean I had a day or two of feeling bad. But it wasn't like crazy. And and my parents actually – they said we can give you the – these tablets of Demerol to go home with, and my parents basically hid that kind of from me. They were like, "Oh, they, they saw what was happening." They basically were like, "Yeah, we're not going to. Once you get home, you're not going to be on anything." And that's what they did. And I think that was smart. Yeah. Uh, so there was really no chance because a lot of people really do get addicted to painkillers, coming off situations where they're in genuine pain and they mm-hmm. really need them, and then transitioning back to a life where you don't use them can be hard. Um, Anyway, but I, I also remember it messed with my memory like crazy. My parents would, had brought me comic books. I like comic books. And so I was sitting in this hospital bed reading comic books, and then they would give me the Demerol, and I would have this, oh, it would be awesome. And then like an hour later, I would take a nap, and I'd wake up, and I'd be like, hey, look, comic books. And, like, and I'd read the same comic <laughs> books again, and I'd be like – it seems Iron Man seems to be somewhat familiar to me. Like he might have he might have gone through this adventure before. Like you know he might have vanquished this villain once in the past. And then I would like put the comic book down, and they'd give me the Demerol, you know, and I'd be like go out, and then I'd be awake up, and be like, hey, comic books. Like it was I was like living Groundhog Day in a way. That that was right. how powerful that drug was. It was messing even with my memory of what I'd experienced. So. Uh, and I wish I could do it. Like I literally wish to this day I could just get some Demerol and do it. I'm smart enough not to. Mm-hmm. But there's something very seductive about, you know, just just give me some. Right. Would you ever do heroin? No. No, they're just things I'm not I'm not willing to take that chance. Just the idea that it could destroy the pleasure centers of your brain forever so that you're never as happy as when, you know, you had your heroin. Like I think that's frightening. Right. Do you do or don't have an addictive personality? Uh, I do with some like uh, like video games. I got really into video games, uh, super into video games, beach volleyball. I, can, I tend to get addic- addicted to something when it's competitive and I'm trying to get better. I don't and know if one weird... can be addicted to beach volleyball. I was playing six days a week okay. for like four hours the, a day. You at the beach? Four hours a day at the beach, nowhere <laughs> right. near the water. But yeah, but yeah, I was I was playing like – I, w- I would screen write during the day, and then at about three or four in the afternoon, I'd go out and play beach volleyball until dark, like for hours and hours. And I was trying to get better, and I just loved it. And it's all I wanted to do. Like I didn't, and I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. I was just, I just wanted to play beach volleyball all day long. And I do think, in a weird way, it was like an addiction. I mean, clearly a very harmless addiction mm-hmm. as far as that goes. But and video games was real. I had to cut video games out of my life for like a decade because I didn't have to, but I did because I was like. I was just playing it too much late at night, like just too many stupid video games. And subsequently, I've gone back and played some video games, but it's in a much more control. I'm much more controlled about it now, so mm-hmm. I'm not too worried. But yeah, I do think you can get addicted to non-physiological yeah, like I drugs. Think so. Sure, I think so. I think anything think that about you're sex using, sex addiction, they talk about, or like anything that you're using it to escape. Yeah, scrapbooking. Some people get addicted to scrapbooking. You could probably get addicted to couponing. <laughs> couponing. Yeah. You say coupon or coupon? I say. I think you said coup- coupon. What did I say? I said coupon? I think you said coupon. I say coupon. coupon. I say coup- I say coupon. 
Which is correct. Do you say Groupon or Groupon? <laughs> <laughs> I say Groupon. <laughs> Wait, do you say culinary or culinary? Definitely culinary. I've never heard culinary, in fact. I think that I might say that sometimes and I think it's wrong. Do you – you know what I realized I say wrong? I know you're a big lover of words and I, I am I too am. and it's just interesting. Yeah, go ahead. I say finance. Yeah, but finance, I, yeah. Me or too. financial. But financial. I think it's financial. Finance. Yeah, yeah I finance. finance. It's financial, yeah. And I um, <laughs> I auditioned for some comedy thing a long time ago. And I had to say fi- financial or financial. Financial is how I say it. But I decided the character would say financial. That was the choice I made. And I was then it was only after that I thought, there's no way they're going to realize that that was anything other than just the way I say it. It's like such a subtle, stupid oh, thing. Yeah. And I think it's more correct anyway that it's like – it's not going to be like, oh, look, she's, wow, she's really transformed herself. She's yeah. like financial. <laughs> she, she would have said financial had she been herself. Yeah. She's an excellent actor. Wait, what's your favorite word? I'm sure My we favorite gone word over this. is uh, Monongahela, which is, didn't go over this. which is a river in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, I love Native American words more than any other words. I think they're the most beautiful words that exist. Uh, words like Wichita and Arapaho. Well, and, and these and are names. Cuyahoga. Some you know, of these were like, names. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're names. It's I'm just in words, Zombieland, words right? from yeah. Well, Zombieland, Wichita. Yeah, I was a lead character. I always thought it'd be cool to name a daughter Wichita. Um, I just love the sound of Native American language. That's just so cool. Uh, th- there are so many that are so cool, like Iroquois. You know, I just just uh, Sioux. I mean, just words that are just really, really seductive and great. I love them. Now, is part of the reason you like Sioux because it's S I O U? Yeah, okay. you're right. Sioux probably doesn't count. No, no, no. It can How about still Lakota? Count. The Lakota Sioux, the Lakota or Dakota. Like those are just such a powerful, beautiful sounding word. I think they're probably the most beautiful languages, very underrated in that. You know, just, oh, French is so beautiful. But I, I would assume if you listen to a Navajo or a Hopi or, or just a- anyone from a- any of the Native American tribes speak uh, at length, it would just be gorgeous to listen to. This feels like the perfect transition for just me or everyone. Where people send in things they do or think, and they think, is it just me or everyone? Let's do it. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? All right, James Minor 3. After friending on Facebook, I do an intense survey of my page and pictures and tweak to give a tailored view. E- example, remove bad TV show likes. Um, I... I don't know if I actually tweak it, but I do do that. I'm not on Facebook that much, but when I Nor do, I. yeah, like if someone, if I add someone or if they add me, then all of a sudden I will think, oh, I better see what exactly they're looking at. So then I'll go look at it and then I think I should edit it and then I get overwhelmed and I don't. So it's kind of it and everyone. I'm sorry, James Minor 3. I never do that. You're weird. <laughs> Gary, do you? No, no, I don't do that. Do you guys even use Facebook? Yeah. But mostly I do to view other yeah. people. It's a consumption tool for me as well. Right. All right. Yeah. And my joke on Facebook, not my joke, my belief is that no one improves upon closer inspection. That's a terrible thing to say, but. Wait, no human being does? No human being on Facebook. Basically, people don't improve the more you find out about them. Oh, interesting. You t- they, you, I don't know. They just. T- I don't. I don't love Facebook for that reason. But um, do you feel like that's the I'm case in real life, in though? Because um, Adam, I think his phrase is, 
more mystery, less history. That's like oh. a that was a love line thing, oh, like that's a tip a cool, for guys on dates and things. Cool idea, yeah. Because I feel like I mean, I, too much mystery is probably frightening if you just yeah. like, who is this person, but, <laughs> right? Yeah, this cipher. Because I am very much a like here I am. Let me show you everything that's wrong with me. And I don't mean photos and you know stuff like that. I mean more just the status updates. They just oh, tend right. to be annoying or whatever. You know, they just tend to be like, ugh. You know, I didn't really need to know that, or I didn't need to. <laughs> you know, hear you brag about that. You know, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. DV Mike W. When autocorrect makes it I instead of I'm, I reread it and think I sound, oh, there's Uh-oh. that word you don't like, retarded. Example, I a big fan of your show. Um, I, I haven't noticed autocorrect doing that one. Does autocorrect turn I'm into I often? I've never had it uh, do that. I'm never had it do that. <laughs> Me am neither. Okay. Uh, big TD79. I pretend to use the force when an automatic door opens. I don't do that, but I want to do that. Oh, I know. On. I want to do it too. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. I like the, that idea. Great one. Thomas Larton. After sex, I have no idea where I put my clothes. Um, I pretty much always, after just wait, after changing, I have no idea where I put my clothes. And then I find them in a pile. N- no sex involved. Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, probably if if leading up to it it's awesome and the clothes are flying off then that's a good thing you don't have any idea where you put them if you're putting them into a neat pile maybe there's something (laughs) wrong right hang on I need to hang this up that's what I say Um, All right, I need to talk about something involving sex it's the whole and I think it's come up on this show before Uh, the reason that I am not a big and now I'm revealing something about Daniel as well uh, I the reason I'm not like, yeah, let's shower together and all that and have that be something intimate is because I would have to get out and blow dry my hair. And there would be a, there would be a wait. Hmm. You guys have no reaction to this. Have you ever hooked up with a girl in the shower and then had to wait while she blew dry her hair? No. All right. Okay. Anyway. Say it, Gary. So to my listeners who He's shaking also his head. Gary's shaking his have head, so that's a no. tresses that they care about, I would just like to ask, what do you do with the frizzy situation? Okay. Kelly tweets you, Halloween is quickly approaching. Candy. Noticing that I eat the chocolate off of the top and sides of the Kit Kats first. Um, I don't do how that. How does one do that? I mean, how do you lick it off? With- I think you'd you like nibble sort of, it off. Yeah, I think it'd be a nibble. It'd be sort of like a corn action. This is what I do with a Kit Kat. I think. I think I the first couple of bites would be normal, and then I would split it in half. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, a Kit Kat doesn't really lend itself to creative eating the way, say, an Oreo would or something. How do you eat an Oreo? Well, I don't, but you can break it apart right. and lick the cream out of the middle, and then or you know whatever. But I a Kit Kat's kind of a it's just a little brick. A, little long, a long little two-by-four of chocolate. Like, it's hard to do too much with it. Interesting. But. Have you ever tried to eat the shell off of an M&M or a Skittle? No. Rhett, you have not lived. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bryant Rich, another food one. I'm excited to eat my lovingly crafted salad bar salad until I see someone else's. Suddenly, my choices seem wildly inferior. I can relate because I'm very bad with decisions. But usually, I just look at someone else's salad bar salad and I think whole different life went into that salad. <laughs> so many different decisions. Like, I would not have done that with the whatever. Whatever totally, it is. Totally. And I think it, it, it should reinforce the salad that you got as being better. 
Right. Because, oh, they throw all those things on there that are yeah. terrible. Yeah. Like I w- like that dressing I never would have gotten. There's right. There's sunflower seeds I wouldn't have done that. Right. Onions, what? What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who would do that? Right. And the, like I those, agree. those crispy Asian noodles on your salad, I, di- I wouldn't have, but maybe. There's a whole – oftentimes a salad bar will have bottles of crunchy things to pour on your salad, and I usually don't avail myself of those. Well, I, this guy should not have salad envy. That's crazy. <laughs> Bryant Rich, you're crazy. You're as crazy as James Minor was weird. <laughs> All right. JRot92. Sometimes before starting a menial task, I'll give myself a little cheerleader pump on. A little cheer, cheerleader pump on, yeah. Ready? Okay. It's fun. I like that. I'm trying to think of Pretty sure I, that says cheerleader pump up. Oh! Yeah. That just, makes just so much sense. Pumping himself up. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Pump on. Pump on. That doesn't even look like on. Thank you, Gary. I think I the best read. thing to do when doing menial tasks is to talk on the phone at the same time. I have a head, I have a phone, a cordless phone with a little headset. I put it on and I do laundry or make the bed. or do, And then you forget all about the menial task because you don't really need your brain for that anyway. Who, and, do, you to- who do you talk to, though? Uh, anyone. Like, you can have a full-on conversation while doing something menial. Yeah. That's the whole idea of menial. Like, I don't, need it. I don't need to think to make the bed, in other words. That's a muscle memory thing. So right. I can have a full-on conversation, not have it affect the conversation. It's my favorite thing to do when I'm doing menial tasks. Talk on the phone. Yeah. I think a lot of people listen to podcasts while doing menial yeah, tasks. Yeah, gr- another great example. Yeah. Because you're ac- – you're, uh, well, like books on tape or something. Right. You know? yeah. I'm very phone-averse. I'm also menial task-averse, but more phone-averse. But the times that I have talked on the phone while doing something, like driving, it actually makes it go by much faster. Mm, for sure. Okay. Uh, by B.V. Vargas. Occasionally have a negative thought about something embarrassing I did pop into my head for no reason like mine Tourette's. Every minute of every day, my friend. Yes. Oh, my God. That, that, you said mine Tourette's. I thought that it says mine turrets on the, tr- oh. the, the, yeah. the, the, the tweet. I was like, mine Tourette? What's a mine turret? That's it's something that you look out of and you see a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right near the cerebellum. Um, I think he means mine Tourette's. And, oh, yes, I can't – like all of a sudden something that I feel weird about from so long ago that I hadn't thought about will pop into my head and I'll think, ugh, ugh. Oh, ugh. yeah, that I happens pretty much, a lot. I, my, my whole life is looking at things from the past and cringing. Really? Yeah, I don't think it's good actually That's because I was but... recently looking for some old photos and pretty much every stage of my life I felt weird about when I looked at it and I thought I, I, sh- I should be more accepting of who I used to be. And who I am, but evidently no. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. But do you have this? Do you yeah, absolutely. Yeah, probably not as intensely as it sounds like you do, but yeah, right. Sure. Gary. Oh yeah, absolutely. Not not constantly at all, but yeah, definitely. When you're falling asleep, do you review the day and feel weird about things that happened? That's one of my prime times to feel uncomfortable. Oh really? No. Mm-mm. No. No, I can't. I've usually shut it down at that point. What um, do you think about as you fall asleep? Uh, I, you know, I really try not to. I'm pretty good at once I climb into bed, that's the end of the thinking. Really? Yeah, until the next morning. Then I think like crazy. <laughs> if I wake up early, I, then I can't turn it off. But at night, I'm good at that. I don't know why. My thoughts first thing in the morning are usually very repetitive but nonsensical. Mm. Like it's not like I'm not plagued by memories or like real things first thing in the morning. I start to solve the day's problems. What's really? the upcoming day's problems? I'm, I'm starting to write. I'm starting to figure out what needs to happen. That's a problem. Right when you wake up? Yeah, it can happen. And then it's tough to get back to sleep once that happens. Yeah. yeah. But 
No, I don't go over the, the day and beat myself up for what happened usually. That's smart. Gary? Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. I can kind of – I try to – I don't get into bed until everything's done and then I just turn it off. But the second I wake up in the morning, um, I, in fact, I've had to train myself. If I look at my phone oh, yeah. and I see an email, it's over. Like I'm up. Oh, yeah. And I am I am in that email yes. and then I'm in all other 14 that are waiting for me and there is just no chance of my going back to sleep. So if the alarm goes off and I don't have work that day and I know I want to sleep in an extra half hour, I just have to train myself to not look at the phone and hit snooze and go back to bed because once I start reading, it's over. Yeah, I've had that. I I read my phone a lot in the middle of the night or early in the morning. I'll get an email, like a work-related email, and I'll just be lying in bed like, ah. Even if it's not deserved, or even if it is, but uh, yeah, I. In fact, I had to. What I had to break myself of the habit of was responding while still in bed because I'm. Probably oh my not god! Thinking then you're clearly. really into it. Well, you're really not into thinking it clearly. And not thinking clearly. You might write the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Garzali, annoyed in anticipation of people wearing the I Voted stickers in November. Um, I have no problem with the I Voted stickers. In fact, I plan to vote by mail this year and I realized I'm not going to get my I Voted sticker. Same exact thing happened to me. And and then you got bombed a little bit, right? Yeah, I got it in the mail and I was like, well, it wasn't so much bummed because I kind of understand what this guy is saying and and there are people who I see not... Look at me. Not the the lion's share, but there are people you see... a better citizen than you. Right. Right. You just think... (laughs) You're wearing that to feel proud of yourself, and fuck you. But I, I don't. I also don't want to be the guy not wearing it, who people are judging me. Well, couldn't couldn't be bothered to vote today. Right. You know, once every two years, you couldn't be bothered. Like, no, I voted. But well, I think I it's good because I think it's just it's part of the, the, the <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the civic pride of and the communal feeling of hey, we all voted. Hey, I voted. Did you vote? Yay! You know, it's like it's yeah. just let's get into it together. I think that's kind of cool. Would you wear an I donated blood today sticker? No. Do they even have those? I feel like they do. I think it's a gauze ball and a piece of tape. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. But no, I, then I'd start to think that was bragging a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm trying to think of any other stickers that I would or wouldn't wear. Uh, name tags? Are you into the name tag thing? No, I'm up? pretty much never into the name tag oh, I thing. Hate, I hate the name tag thing. Really? And I always feel like a stick in the mud when I won't <clears throat> slap the sticker on my whatever, but I'm always afraid it'll like it'll hurt the fabric and oh, like an asshole. got it. Yeah, you're <laughs> the, worried about the shirt. I recently got into it. Well, not got into it, but got chastised by a volunteer at a hospital because I did not immediately put the name tag she gave me on. And then when I told her... You know, yeah, yeah, I'll put it on. You know, I, I was walking away, and I'm like, yeah, I'll put it on. And she's like, no, turn around and put it on right now. Wow. <laughs> and, made, and I didn't want to fight with her, so I just did it. But. it. Just to prove that you have clearance in the hospital? Is that what it is? Yeah, like I had just gone – I was going to visit um, – well, this might date this, but I was going to visit Mike Dawson. Right. And I went up to this very nice old lady who was volunteering. I told – I got all the – you know, gave her his name, everything. So she gave me a little sticker that said – guest floor five but it didn't say my name or or the room number or anything else it just said guest floor five and i thought well that's not important so i was just gonna walk away and you know hold it with me if anyone asked i'd show them she yeah. busted you no she was uh she was wouldn't insistent. the world wouldn't the world be better if we all just wore them all the time if we just had to by yes because then we would never forget people's right. names and, and i just hate be that because so i have that that social anxiety thing of forgetting the name of someone that i know quite well like it'll just in a flash oh, be yeah. gone, and i'll be like oh Oh, yeah, that's, that's a scary, scary. thought. <laughs> Speaking of name tags, at my sister's wedding, she had a, a, um, 
officious wedding planner. But you know, she was she was good, but she was just uh, just just had hands and everything. So there, uh, we got to the wherever it is that you uh, pick up your name tag, and she said. Like, whatever table it is. I forget if it was before the reception or before this or that or there's, you know, name tags. And <clears throat> she said, just write your relation to the bride or the groom. Like, for you, write sister to Laura. So I wasn't really thinking, so I just, like, went, okay. And I wrote sister to Laura, which is not the grammar that I would have chosen. Sister to Laura, yeah. <laughs> Sister of Laura? You would, would probably be Laura's the direction. Sister. Yes. Hey, any of those, either of those would have been more me than Sister to Laura. So I walked around with a name tag on and said, Allison, Sister to Laura. <laughs> it's a little formal. It's right. It's a little stilted. <laughs> and every time I look at the name tag, I think, ugh. Anyway. So there are um, pictures now of you in the name tag? Or you mean you still look at the name tag? I actually kept the name tag. Okay. And I have it uh, on a bulletin board at my oh. yeah at my parents' house every time I see it. And yet it makes but, you cringe and you don't like it. Why don't you get it off? Why don't you just throw it away? There's so many things that are under that category. <laughs> because it's sentimental, I guess. Right. I don't know. And also, uh, my, my penmanship is very messy on the name tag. In general, I have pretty illegible handwriting at this point. But when I look at it, I'm haunted by that thing that I think about sometimes, which is, what if I were on Jeopardy and... I wrote my name in a really messy way. <laughs> I don't think anyone else is concerned about this, but I am. Because you only have, yeah, you know, you have one mean, chance or have maybe chance. multiple. And that stylus was probably not that easy to use. I know. Yeah, that would be embarrassing. Right. I'm going to talk to Ken Jen- Jennings about that. All right. Well, I believe we've solved all the Just Me or Everyone's. Brett Reese, thank you so much for doing this show. Oh, it's been great to this be has here. It's been delightful. Do you thank have any? You so ad- much. Okay, here's the question that people are going to want me to have asked you. Right. Do you have any advice for people who are starting out? Uh, I'll give the piece of advice that I most often give at the end of my class or any lecture on screenwriting, which is if you've seen Terminator 2, there is a character called the T-1000. The T-1000 is a Terminator made of liquid metal. And throughout the movie, he just gets bashed and, and smashed in all these different shapes, and he keeps reforming. Near the end of the movie, he gets frozen and shattered into a thousand pieces on the ground. And then slowly, the room warms up because of where they are, and the pieces kind of melt, and then they slowly coalesce back into the T-1000. And I think that's a great metaphor for what you need to be as a screenwriter in Hollywood if you intend to succeed. The town is a brutal town. It'll beat you up. It will shatter you into a thousand pieces psychologically and spiritually so many times. And you have to always have those pieces kind of coalesce, reform, and then you have to come at it with renewed effort. You have to be a relentless machine where John Connor is your success, you know, basically. It's like where you have to treat success like John Connor. You have to come at it emotion as emotionless as you can and just attack, 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 attack. You've you got to be the T-1000. And I tell people that because if you aren't, if you're, if you're weaker than that, um, the, 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 the mounting failures that, it, that will come at you will probably dissuade you and you'll end up quitting and it'll be a sad ending. So anyway, that's the advice I usually give. And then just write like a maniac. Write a lot because quantity ultimately uh, is what get. I mean as long as you have talent, you know, it's like not everybody does. But if you have it, then it's the quantity that will get you there. I mean my seventh script is the one that got me noticed. So it took me seven features before I finally got noticed. And, and you have to have that kind of persistence in order to make it. All right. And if uh, people want to find you, 
Is there a website or should they follow you on Twitter? Twitter. Okay. Twitter. It's, at, it's the ampersand Rhett Reese. It's just my name. Um, yeah, and that's the best place to find me and ask me questions or whatever. Uh, on Facebook, I won't friend you if I don't know you, so that's probably not the best time, right. best place to come. Uh, Twitter's easy to do that, and I get back to you know most, if not probably not all people, but most people, I will respond to you somehow. So, right. Yeah. All right. Is Zombieland two, that's happening. Zombieland two, probably not going to happen. I mean, oh. it could still happen, but I think uh, uh, IMDb is a little misleading on that point. It kind of IMDb kind of acts like or thinks that it's going into production, which is not the case. Uh, we've written a Zombieland television pilot that, in theory, could happen sooner than Zombieland oh, two, cool. the movie. So that could happen. Um, yeah, G.I. Joe next March. My novel's called, called Anxiety. It's on Amazon. Better to search by my name than the title because there are a million books with the, with the title <laughs> of Anxiety or with it in the title. So search for my name if you want that one. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much thank for you. having me. It's really been fun. All right. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F. Follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. Um, you can email the show A-R-I-Y-N-B-F at AdamCrolla.com. And if you are going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, then click through the banner on my website, AllisonRosen.com, and that helps out the show. I love you guys, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye. We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Thank you for choosing the Allison Rosen Show. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. That's right. Digital.